Welcome all to the AquaConnect conference. It is just 9 a.m. on the West Coast, 2 p.m. in UK, and 5 p.m. in Dubai. My name is Sharad Agarwal. I'm the CEO of CyberGear based in Dubai, and I'm also the founder of OnlyWebinars.com, and I'm pleased to be hosting uh, today's conference. Uh, do use the chat window to interact with us and let us know which part of the world you are coming in from. We'll get started by me introducing my good friend, Laudis Gant, who I happened to meet some two years back at Your Global Village, a community where both of us are members. And so we got to know each other. And a few months back, Lourdes reached out to me and said, Sharad, I'm very excited to be hosting a series of online conferences. Why don't we join hands and make this happen? And so here we are today. Let me introduce uh, my good friend, Lourdes. And Lourdes, if we can have you on camera, that would be lovely. There you go. Uh, Lourdes, uh, thank you so much for being the producer of the show. We made it happen. And uh, for those who don't know you already, let me introduce Lourdes to you. She is the co-owner of Manatee Group. She's an aquapreneur, a mentor, and runs a very popular podcast. I do urge you to subscribe to her podcast to stay in touch with all the latest trends in the industry. Lourdes was ranked by a Chatelaine magazine to be one of Canada's top 100 female entrepreneurs. Congratulations, Lourdes, for that achievement. Thank she you, and everybody, welcome. Yeah, sure. And I'm not done yet because you have so many achievements, and I want to point out a couple more. She is also one of the most influential sustainable aquaculture businesswoman for the year 2023, organized by Acquisition International. She's a wife, a mother of a teenager, has a Siamese cat, and lives in Vancouver Island. So great to have you, Lourdes. I'm going to hand it over to you. Please tell us what was the inspiration for organizing this conference. Over to you. Sounds good. Thank you, Sharad. And thank you, everybody, for showing up today. I once had a mentor who said, showing up is 80% of success. So welcome, Marco. Welcome, Everybody who's here, I see Enoch is here, and there's a lot more people from different areas of the world. We have people from Kashmir, from Uganda, from Spain. I can see everybody from Vancouver. Lindsay is here. Rob Arthurs is here. Victor from Baja California. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, for being here today. This show will not be possible with you showing up. And, of course, Everything about this conference is about people and about community. So I am really grateful that you're here today and we'll get this show started. And hopefully you feel that this is not a one person show, a two person show, because it's not. A lot of the speakers that you will hear today are people that I have personal connection with and they're supporting us, supporting our industry and you being here and know that I don't know everything, so you know better than I do because you're the technical experts in the industry. 
but I just wanted to be able to share with you what's going to happen today. And if there's anything that you need, I have my team here, obviously, Sharad, you met Michelle that you can see from the chat. I have Marilise, Ross, and I have a lot more people who are in here. So I would like to be able to let you know what's going to happen in the next two days. So um, somebody is going to put on the chat what's going to happen, but you can see here your guide for the whole conference. You're seeing here, you can join our community on LinkedIn. You can book a free navigation call on how we can support you. Obviously, if you're not already listening to the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. All of our conference slides that we'll be sharing will be on this um, side of the chat there that you can see the link and the booklet to see who the, all of our speakers are and who are our um, sponsors, which I'm very, very grateful for. Obviously, this again, this conference won't be happening without people talking about community, bringing the industry together. We'll share more about what we're going to be talking about so we can support you. And so all, everything that you need will be on this site. So if, if you can see on the chat, then you will already know how to get in here. So let's get the show started. So why don't we introduce our first speaker, Shred? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so just a note for the audience, please continue to communicate with us uh, through the chat or the Q&A tab on your screen. We are happy to answer your questions, uh, you know, so feel free to uh, keep the conversation going. And uh, yeah, it's my distinct uh, honor to introduce to you our keynote speaker, Oren Claff. Oren is the Managing Director of Intersection Capital. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Pitch Anything and Flip the Script. This is a required reading, not only in Silicon Valley, by all across the globe who are interested in knowing more on this subject. So I'm going to hand it over to Oren for the keynote and over to you, Oren. There we go. Th thank you very much for the introduction. Glad to be here today. Uh, and I'm, I'm very thankful to Lourdes for inviting me and giving me 35 minutes to present my hour and a half speech. So if you're wondering, why does Oren talk so fast? It's not Oren. I can talk at a normal pace. It's Lourdes. All right. It's 100 percent her. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I just wanted to give you guys a, a little bit of a history of the material about to see here in the next few minutes. Lourdes is well-trained in over a couple of years. One of the most exciting things that I heard from her is uh, the, the presentation that she has about aquaculture and, and um, manatee and, and her and Eric's uh, aquaculture farm and everything is, is an amazing story, but it is an agriculture, aquaculture farming story. And uh, my, my favorite story about this is uh, Lourdes took her pitch and presentation to a technology conference. Same thing you're going to see here. Shortly, she took it to a technology conference, gave a aquaculture pitch, and won first place. That's what I think is the power in this material. And for those of you who hear this in a man's voice, women can do this very easily. We have a woman who was up on this stage right behind me. Um, when she learned this stuff, she went out and she raised $5 million with a piece of paper with almost nothing in Silicon Valley, which is sort of the hardest-hitting men's club uh, you know, in, in the insider country club for money in the world. So this is stuff that you're going to see here can take and use tomorrow and i think that's why i'm here because for those of you in agriculture aquaculture especially aquaculture uh capital raising 
which is my main subject, is the difficult thing, right? These things require investment. Um, they require – you need to be allowed to make mistakes and grow and build a new sustainable technology. That requires capital. Where does capital come from? That's what we're going to get into right now. So uh, what I want to do is run this slide through for you guys. Um, I am laptop to wall. All right. And we hit play. So this is a question everybody asks. Who do I go talk to for money? And just sound check, mic check, Camden, everything's going good? All right. Who do I go talk to if I want money? Well, you know, there's places that money comes from, right? It, it, it aggregates in channels. So money comes from households, right? So even if you get money from a venture capital, from a private equity group, from a bank, it all comes from households. And then it pulls up into the into these clusters and then it spreads out into groups. And then those groups make investment in you, right? So those groups look like angel groups, venture capital, private equity, banks. This is my favorite category. Crazy rich guys. Uh, companies put out investment and capital is, you know, family offices, and then there's just sketchy other stuff, right? Um, stealing your employer's money, running to Vegas for the weekend, trying to triple it, coming back, return the money unnoticed. Sketchy other stuff, but it can work. Just don't you guys try it, all right? So so you say, hey, well, I'm going to go get private equity. I'm going to go get angel capital. You're going to do all that work to go get the money, right? But I, I, I would affectionately say that's wrong. The money should come to you, and that's the process I'm going to talk to you about today. So the old way is you going, I am going to prepare myself to go get and present to venture capital. The new way is I am going to prepare myself for the money to come find me. How is that possible? That's what we're going to try and speed through today. Uh, but, but fundamentally, there's a problem. I'll just share with you direct to screen if I go laptop lives, just so you can read it. The skills to quickly and easily get investor capital are buried inside an insider language based on specific presentation formats and financial templates it's the ultimate secret handshake that if you don't know it you're out so uh i put on screen here uh and and up here this is my partner russell i'll tell the story because i'm on limited time quite quickly we were in a deal and it was my job to close the final investor i could not get him closed on something called a bad boy carve out every investor has to sign it it means you won't act like a bad boy in the deal. Otherwise, we can throw you out. So this investor, Andreas, says, I won't sign the bad boy carve out. We go back and forth. He's a nice guy. We have a great relationship. I work with him for weeks. He signs every other piece of the contract. We're ready to close a $12 million deal. Andreas's piece is a million dollars. I will make a quarter million dollars. All he has to do is sign this one damn piece of paper that everybody signs. In the last 3,000 real estate deals that were done in our market, people signed this piece of paper except for Andreas doesn't want to sign it. He's German, never seen it before. And so I can't get him to sign it when my quarter million dollars is on the other side. Of it. So I call my partner, Russell, pictured here. And I say, Russell, you know, you're an attorney. You know how to talk to these guys. Just you've closed these deals. Just call up Andreas and talk to him. So Russell calls up Andreas. They talk for a little bit and he goes, Andreas, I know exactly what we need to do. Do you have the documents there? And Andreas goes, I have them right here in his German accent. Uh, and, and I, and Russell goes, great. What I want you to do is I want you to roll them up as if you're like a map, as if you were going to ship them to us. Andreas goes, why, why should I do this? You know, and, 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 and Russell goes, just, 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 just do it. And so, um, he, uh, uh, Andreas fumbles with the paper and Russell goes, great. Is it rolled up like a map? And Andreas says, yes, it is. And Russell goes, great. 
here's what I want you to do with the papers. Take that rolled up bad boy carve out and shove it up your ass. Okay, Orrin will stay on the phone. If you have any other questions, I'm out of here. Click. So in the old days before Zoom calls, when somebody, you know, hang up, everybody else is still on the line. So I'm still on the line. And of course, Andrea says, mad. Nobody talks to me like that. Does not invest. We get off the phone and I call up Russell. I'm like, Russell, what in the hell? Why did you lose me that deal? You're a rich guy. You have all the money in the world. You don't need another deal. I needed this deal. He was right on the line and you lost it. And he said, Oren, you lost that deal for us six weeks ago. I just ended what was going on. He goes, because you are doing everything that this guy wanted, you're acting needy and neediness kills deals. And so that's where I learned that I, I, I was killing the deals, you know, and Russell was just coming in and ending our misery. So the lesson one is never be needy. And the rest of this presentation with the time I have left is about how you can internally control yourself to not be needy in a deal. And basically, you already know the answer because I gave it to you on the last slide, which is there's a special insider language to finance. And when you know that language and you know the processes, then you can talk uh, to any investor from a non-needy position. Never be needy. Uh, I'm going to teach you two nevers and you can change your entire life. That's why I hate that coffee machine because <laughs> it makes noises. Put, can you take a note over there? Kill Jason. All right. So great. Uh, never be never be needy. Uh, and there's another never coming up here. And if you just do these two things, your entire capital raising existence will change. All right. So in... As I, as I start to give you some instructions on Never Be Needy, I want to share this slide with you because this is the, oh my God, that coffee machine is madness. Um, so if I go laptop live, right. So this slide, for those of you familiar, um, th this is from the show Game of Thrones. Uh, if you haven't already seen it, I'm not recommending it. It's definitely not for children. But the interesting thing, I'll just show you these slides here uh, directly, is the makers of the show learned the one tool that you also need to learn in any capital raising situation. Uh, and so if you're, if you're familiar with these characters, what would happen in the show is they had these very rich, interesting, charismatic uh, characters. Let's go back. Um, laptop to wall, wide cam live. Great. Uh, so, so they have these rich, interesting, different characters. They have magical powers and they have incredible strength and fortitude. And then they had their, um, their, their counterculture warriors, you know, female warriors. And you had to start keeping track of all these people, right? And then what would happen is they would introduce new characters and the mother of dragons. And then over here, they would have uh, uh, the Iceman, you know, and over here they would have battles and then they would have families attacking each other and entire, entire generations of families being wiped out. And this, are you confused? Correct. The show is confusing. You know what else is confusing? Whatever it is you're working on in aquaculture or technology or sustainability uh, or so, you know software in this area, confusing. So the show would would just ramp up and confuse you, and then pretty soon there would be um, so much so much characters and people killing each other, and you couldn't figure out who's on what side, right? And the the, the show producers would know. We have confused everybody. And this is the device they used every single time. Winter is coming. So if, if you're familiar with this show, the second they announce a great winter, everybody shut up. Everybody stopped fighting with each other. The dragons went back in their cave and they did three things. They looked for food, they looked for shelter, and they looked for friends. And they stopped fighting because winter 
cannot be conquered. Winter is a force that wipes out every human motivation, that wipes out every human question, that is a, a, a unquestionable uh, a force that will drive everyone's behavior, right? And that is the first rule of capital raising, the setup. It's got to be set up that there is a driving force in your industry that is going to change all consumer behavior, all logistic behavior, all industrial behavior, all financial behavior, and you don't control it. It is an external force that will change supply and demand. So I can tell you this. If you come in here and we run a country club for money um, and you present or you go to the kinds of places that Lordes goes to present – uh, uh, you know, for capital and resources and, and just get things done. If there's no external driving force that is changing the economics of supply and demand, you don't have a presentation. You might think you have a presentation. People might act like they're listening, but without the setup and without the change in supply and demand, you do not have a presentation. All right. So how does the setup work? I just spelled it out for you. You can take a photo of the slide. I don't like, you know, uh, Lordette, you can ask these slides for, from Lordette. She has many copies of them. So the setup is name a big relevant change in the world. Winter is coming. Well, I, you know, what are we talking about? Oh, I don't know. Like um, ESG, compliance, sustainability, um, um, the, the, the uh, organic, you know, and sustainable foods movement, um, lack of nutrients um, in the, uh, you know, in the foods, like it, uh, software changing the uh, efficiency of fishing, the Israelis, you know, rising to ascension in fishery technology, Canada having the, having now the world's best culture, uh, West Coast, like there's a million changes happening. Ukraine, you can't get grain, um, you know, grain feeds, uh, whatever. The, the, the dollar is weak against the euro. The euro is too strong. The UK economy is like there. I, I could sit here. I, I don't even follow the news closely. And I could walk you through change in every return of the pandemic, um, the um, um, the, the, you know, the, the rise of the cost of living, um, the uh, climate change, you know, having both positive and negative effects in different areas across the world, rising sea, you know, increase in, uh, you know, storm effects, the not increase in storm effects, according to the Republicans, the gap between the Republicans and the Democrats, like, 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 there's just a million changes going on in every industry. So you've got to name the big relevant change that is forcing the change in supply and demand, right? And there's a slide, big stakes, huge urgency. Then you have to raise the stakes. Okay, um, so um, here I put a, I, uh, a moving forward. Hey, Lord S, you, you might have to grant an extra five minutes. I know I'm not moving very quickly here. This is a balanced beam. This is a line on this stage. I can walk this line no problem with almost with my eyes closed. I have not missed the center of this line at all. It's easy for me because it's low stakes. Put me on the balance beam, and this is a high balance beam that I chose for sure. I'm either going to walk a lot slower and a lot more carefully, and I probably can't make it across. Why? Because my nervous system is uh, is way amped up. The stakes are higher. I don't want to fall. Um, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of my son, and 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 the stakes are higher. I'm paying a lot more attention, and my nervous system is switched on. This is why you introduce the change in supply and demand, and then you make it personal for the people you're talking to. Raise the stakes. If you want to know why somebody did not pay attention to you, did not return your email, did not seem excited about your deal, it's this. The stakes for them were not high. All right, so what are the stakes? This is how you raise the stakes. 
you show that in, in the person you're talking to in their market, there's going to be winners and losers. Investors are going to win and lose, right? Um, the the uh, suppliers are going to win and lose. The farms are going to win and lose. The, the, the suppliers, the distributors, everything is going to shift around. But you, the investor, have a very narrow path to decide today who you bet on. And that path is going to determine winners and losers because everything is shifting around. So unless the investor believes that both in their in their portfolio, in their capital market, and in the market you're in, there's going to be winners and losers, it's going to be a snore fest. You, not it, you are going to be putting them to sleep in a non-compelling, non-exciting presentation. Uh, so what's an example of this? I'll share this directly with you to the screen. Here's an, here, here's an example of raising, the, of raising the stakes that raise millions of dollars. Today, if there's an unfortunate twist of fate in your life with a slip, a fall, a crash, or worse, your instincts will be to dial 911. This single action will put your fate in the hands of a Byzantine network of phone operators, private contractors, and public services, so good luck, right? Once you know how a 911 call is routed, you'll buckle up more often, wear better equipment for the sports you play, and generally live a more cautious life. A 911 response time can be 15 minutes or more. Will you survive that? Maybe, probably, hopefully. But if you're disabled or critically injured, then seconds count. For this reason, it's possible that a 911 call will be the last call you ever make. All right? So so I, I don't know. Like, if you want an example of raising the stakes, I just – I don't know how to raise the stakes higher than that in a presentation. It's possible that a 911 call will be the last call you ever make, right? And then it just goes on to land the plane. Uh, but it's not just about personal injury. A 911 is a serious problem for hospitals too. It costs them $8 billion a year. Last call you ever make costs hospitals $8 billion a year. Now we have a conversation that people are paying attention to. Look, I know this isn't your market, but it's a good example of raising the stakes. Okay, after you have raised the stakes, now you do not tell people what it is you have. The second you spit out, oh, we have a aquaculture deal, we're raising $3 million to install new technology and you know increase revenues to $12 million. Great. Uh, I know what the deal is. Send me the pamphlet. Um, you know, we'll follow up with you in a week or so if we have any questions, right? You don't just spit out what you have. You create intrigue around it. Camden, my main man, what time is it? How much time do we have? It's 9.22. All right. Very generous with time here today. Intrigue. What is intrigue? We try to make intrigue as simple as possible. If you're like me, you come home and on the doorstep is some Amazon boxes, right? And you're like, oh, what did I, what? I forgot what I bought myself. It was probably like a camera or my new phone, right? And then you rip into those boxes and what is in there? Lindsay, what's always in those boxes? What is it? What, you, what did you order? You come home, there's a there's a, uh, a Amazon box on your doorstep. What's in it? Clothes, toothpaste, toilet paper, uh, some pens because you ran out of pens, um, some uh, a, a hairbrush, some tape, right? Correct. All this shit, right? There's never like, oh, I bought myself a camera and I forgot. It's this, right? But so that's fine. 
but you're always intrigued what's in that box. Guess who else is intrigued? My son. He comes home, right, and he sees those boxes on the front doorstep. And because he's a kid that looks like this, hope springs eternal. And he goes to that box and he rips it open, hoping it's going to be, you know, Legos or something. And it's always, it's always just this, right? It doesn't matter. Every single time the box comes, he is intrigued by what is in there. And he rips it open with the most reckless energy, enthusiasm, and abandon as if the, you know, the, 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 the golden brick from Lego Masters is in there and it's toothpaste, right? And you get that face. So one day I decide my son is going to get a box with something for him in it, right? And what have I done here? I got a big box. You can't see how big this truck is. I'm going to show you in a minute. There's an F-350 um, dually twin cab 6.6 liter lifted truck. So that's a big box you're looking at there, right? There's me unloading the box. That now we are amping intrigue, right? By a, a box and we're raising the stakes by the size of the box, right? And uh, and so what I do is, um, by the way, that's the truck. That's the boy. And that's the truck the box delivered in just to give you a sense of perspective. Okay. Um, wow, a lot of photos of the truck. All right, so there's the box. I leave it for him in the living room, right? I put a little note on it. Um, and so he wakes up in the morning. Oh, there he is. There he is the night before, innocently sleeping um, with his little little babies and has no idea what's coming for him. Wakes up in the morning and there it is. He sees right here, there's a kid, a giant box, 10 times bigger than the kid. Intrigue and dopamine and excitement and enthusiasm is at a level, well, and he rips into that box. How happy do you think somebody is opening the box that contains something that could potentially change their life? And he rips into that box. Here we go. That's it. That was a whole clip. All right. In that car, in that box is a car. Right? I know. Who gives their six-year-old a car? Um, nobody, but, uh, you know, we're talking about raising the stakes. So there in the box is a car and, uh, we end up building the car. Uh, you know, and there he is the first day with the car. There he is out on the racetrack with the race car. There he is, uh, having developed his race career at age six a bit. There he is, uh, in, in a race. So from, from box to satisfaction is a journey. It is not this is what we have, right? And for those of you who want to put your son out on a racetrack, here's what it looks like. And if you really want to piss your wife off or anybody in your family, put your six-year-old in a race car. That is a different presentation. But what we are talking about here is intrigue. Somebody has to believe that you have a box with the solution to the supply and demand imbalance caused by the environmental changes called winter is coming. And until they believe that, uh, that um, a, 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 a hazardous winter is changing the environment, supply and demand is changing, and you have in the box there an amazing solution for that supply and demand, they're not intrigued, interested, excited, enthusiastic, connected, emotional, desirous, fundamentally uh, connected to what you're doing. 
You didn't know how it worked like that, but this is the secret language of deal making that is happening below the surface in every deal. So we're going to talk specifically. So if you don't have a box in which your deal and your technology and your thing is in, in which you show people the box, but not what is in it, you have not created intrigue, right? And so uh, uh, you should have mentally, you know, something that looks like this, and I'll walk you through the steps. So before you can show somebody what's in the box, take the lid off of it, you have to uh, develop your status. What comes from your status? Knowing the insider language, knowing the macroeconomics of what's changing in the environment, understanding the economics of supply and demand, and understanding who's going to be a winner, who's going to be a loser, and why. That is a high-status presentation that people will be interested in. You also have to be an expert in what you're doing. I cannot listen to you. I cannot believe in you. I cannot be uh, intrigued by what you're doing unless I believe you're an expert in what you're doing. So you can't show people what's in your box, what's in your technology, whatever the case is, until they believe you're an expert. You have to raise the stakes. Why would I listen to you? It takes a lot of energy, mental energy from the neocortex to sit around and listen to you speak, to me speak for 45 minutes. A huge amount of energy. Why? Because I'm thinking about whatever, Game of Thrones, going on vacation, buying a car, selling a car, having a baby, kid going off the car, whatever, right? There has to be stakes in order for me to listen to you in an interested way for 45 minutes. And then I have to agree with the values that you and I share. So until any of this stuff is out on the table and concrete and cemented, why in the world would you show people what you have in the box? The answer is you wouldn't. And now we're talking the insider language. So here, let me rip you through this. If you want to know how to do this for your deal, it's very easy. You call up Lourdes and you go, Lourdes, teach this to me. She knows this stuff flat rope. But anyway, uh, so after the setup is the intrigue. And the intrigue is where you get people excited about the notion that there's something compelling in the box. So how do you do that? You say, is the perfect world possible? where supply and demand is imbalanced, the nuclear winter comes through and we are able to take advantage of it with the technology and the products and the company we have. And it's an authentic question. And now you're asking questions from a position of truth and not trying to sell someone a value proposition. Is it possible that a perfect world is possible that all these changes happen and a great company emerges to solve the imbalance of supply and demand with a jaw-dropping product. Uh, and then, and only then, do you reveal what it is you have, where am I, in the box, right? Your deal only is revealed after all this other stuff happens first. Take a picture of this slide. If this is confusing, um, that is my fault. We have somebody who's completely new to this material. Tell me honestly, are you confused or is it, May, at least, okay, um, you, you can honestly say it's confused. We can we can um, delay this conference for another hour, get sued by the organizers um, and everything like that, but at least you will have told the truth. So make some sense. Camden, you've never seen this before. Make any sense to you? All right, he has to say that. Um, but but she doesn't. She, she, uh, uh, she's aware. All right, so this, this should, be, should be pretty clear. All right, so intrigue looks like this. Is it possible that... Um, that, oh, this is, this is for a specific deal. So is it possible that our industry looks like this in, in the future, right? Is there a perfect, is it possible that 
the supply and demand could be balanced out. You could create a great company with a jaw-dropping solution. That is what I'm going to show you for the rest of our time together. Boom. And then you move into the reveal. So the reveal is the end of the presentation in which you open the box. Introduce the value proposition, the jaw-dropping features that you offer as really the magic, the jaw-dropping thing that will overcome the real-world obstacles that you have um, uh, introduced to people and can create the ideal future where the investor is in the perfect deal. This, what you have seen here, is the insider language that investors speak to each other in this format. Uh, and then, by the way, it looks like this. So when you see this, you're like, hey, here is a, is, is a jumble of information. Not really. This is the reveal that makes everything else, uh, the setup, the, um, the, the raising the stakes, the intrigue, uh, you know, all of that connect the dots. So this page, if you just dump people in them, a page like this, they cannot contextualize it. But you can make it this complicated uh, and this numerical when you have correctly done the setup, uh, the intrigue and raise the stakes. And then the last piece of it is to provide certainty. So it's one thing to reveal to people your jaw-dropping um, you know, solution for the problem in the market, but you have to provide certainty that you're the one that does it. I always love when I walk, uh, when I take one of my cars to an automotive shop and I see a guy doing this, like he's got a, like a V8 Mercedes motor out of a new Mercedes. The engine is, you know, taken apart and he's putting it back together. Right? I'm like, that is amazing, right? I have a lot of certainty that that guy knows his trade, knows auto mechanics, because why? He's actually doing it. He's not in the service shop telling me how good they are at doing mechanic work. He's, you know, I like shops like this because he's showing me that he's actually capable of doing the work. And that is what provides certainty is your expert status. So the, the, the lesson there is show people that you're an expert, don't tell them. If you're telling people where you got your degrees, all the companies you were in, all the deals you helped out on, um, it, it, it is just, you're, you're burning cycles, burning time. There's really, no one is paying attention to what you're saying because you cannot tell people you're an expert, you can only show them. And we have some tools for doing that. But at the end of the day, present the evidence that you can make the whole story that you told up to this point come true. So um, if you want to know where the private entrance is to the money markets and the deals and the joint ventures and all the other things, right? This is the pattern that the experts and people who know what they're doing snap in to the money market. All right. The last thing I want to run you through, and we're, we're cresting uh, the corner on time. What time do you have there? 5.35. We are finished. So uh, I'm going to take an extra two minutes because of the uh, long introduction for Lourdes and myself that was very uh, thoughtful. But I'm going to take an extra two minutes. So, um, and get your camera ready because you want to take a picture of this slide. This is the, uh, so what I showed you is the five like macro organizing principles if you want to know, hey, Oren, but but what do I actually put on each slide? This is it, right? What is changing in the world and why that change is creating a huge problem? If those aren't your first two slides, you are just going to a meeting to die and suffer in misery and be somewhere between unhappy and extremely unhappy. And you're going to come home and you're going to um, yell at your kids. Your kids are going to 
be mean to your wife and your wife is going to kick the cat. So if you don't do that, you're fucking over the cat. Excuse my language. All right, we got that understood. Uh, the next thing is you have to paint how this change in one slide is creating a huge unmet demand. And then you can drop in what our great solution is for that unmet demand. Then you can explain what traction we have in, uh, in the market and in the space and in the deal uh, and, and why we're coming to the investor today. And, and um, not only do we have traction, but boil that traction down to an individual customer, individual partner, individual account, and why that individual account happens to be working. And then you can move on and just, you know, this is stuff you probably already have. Then do your business model, then do the investment opportunity, then do the key assumptions, right? So there's, there's 250 things that have to happen in the morning to turn this facility on, right? But some of them are not like critical to the function of the business. There's five key assumptions that we have about making all this work. One, the internet is on. Two, Camden shows up. Three, um, that Zoom is working. Four, uh, that I show up and get to work. You know, and five, uh, something else. Those are only five real things that have to happen, right? Everything else is we can live with. What are the five assumptions about your business? You know, actually working. What are your financial projections? How are you going to use the money that you accept? And where are you going next to take over the industry? So if you want to know like what's on your deck, forget. Stop typing in uh, what should be in a pitch deck or Sequoia pitch deck or pitch deck examples. Because all that stuff is for day one startups to try and raise $25,000 from um, um, a, you know, some angel investor. And that's not the market you're in. This is a professional um, uh, presentation. So with that said, what I wanted to do is just complete the thinking. And Lord, I'm going to let you guys off the hook here in one minute. I can put you in front of investors all day long. But if you can't take that starting process and run a specific insider process, then these fantastic meetings will go nowhere. I showed you today exactly what the insider process is. The, the inside, same insider process that Lordes can go to a technology conference and win first prize with an aquaculture pitch. All right. Anything is possible if you run these steps. I want you guys to get out there and do it. And then lastly, I would like to just say anything that we or you can do uh, with these tools to support Lordes and to support the aquaculture community um, in sustainable aquaculture and certainly Lordes's you know, logistics platform, which she'll be telling you more about in a bit. All right. Thank you for the organizers. Thank you for all the technical people that make this work. Thank you for Lordes. And I will turn it back over to you. If you have any questions on anything that we talked about here, we can go over it for a couple minutes. And um, yeah, Lordes, take it away. Anything uh, new here? that you want to talk about, or are you guys just trying to get rid of me? Okay, I hear nothing, but. I'm very impressed. You have actually lots of time. So we have a oh, question. I, okay, great. <laughs> we have a question from Lindsay, and then um, maybe we can go with some more people. Um, her first question is, does this work for debt financing? So this works for picking up girls. Okay, uh, so um, just kidding. It, it doesn't. Um, this 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 works for. Um, what, what's interesting is we had a company in here, and they're like, "Does this work for sales?" I'm like, yes. It, this is the highest 
functioning of a presentation format for the human mind. So it is not about debt or equity or MES or private equity or venture capital or angel or the size of the round, you know, or the, the, you know, the shares or public or private. What this material is intended to do is plug into the mind of people who work in and around money. So it's a long answer for uh, this, uh, th this functions in yes, in debt financing, in equity financing, in a $25,000 debt financing, in a, I'm currently out raising $215 million. And let me tell you the process that I'm running. You just saw it. If I took you through my slide deck, you will say, hey, Oren, I thought you were an expert in this. This is just exactly the same thing that you just showed up on stage. I'm like, yes, I don't deviate from the formula because the formula works in the mentality of every investor's mind, which uh, I'll give you the follow-up question, Lord S, that everybody asks is, should I change my presentation for debt? Should I change it for equity? Should I change it for check size? Should I change it for public or private market? Should I change it for agriculture, aquaculture, technology, logistics? You should not change your presentation. One presentation should tell the truth of who you are in this format for any intermediary or principal in the capital markets. One formula to rule them all. Thanks, Aaron. And I think that's the beauty of having a formula or if we're in the context of home, as you know, family is one of our values that we share together is that there's a recipe. So whatever that you are um, sharing this on, um, that recipe always works if you follow the formula. So thank you. So maybe another question from the audience. So drop it on the chat and then um, this is your perfect moment to ask an expert. So I think if there's one thing that uh, we need to have in the community is that you are surrounded by people who are masters at their game. And so maybe I can ask a question from the standpoint then of where did you get the idea when you wrote your books about the croc brain? You were talking about the amygdala there. That's why it applies because all humans has the brain. So maybe so you can this share is, that. Sure. This is a very triggering story for me um, because when I wrote the book, uh, I'm not sure I had a, 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 you know, a ton of money lying around. And I hired a psychologist for $10,000 to walk me through like what I was doing wrong in this, you know, in the sales that I was trying to make and the, the, the equity that I was trying to raise, like, why was I screwing up so much? So I hired a, um, a cognitive psychologist, right? But just because um, um, from the U uh, University of California, San Diego, you can't hire a psychologist from their department, but what you can do is sponsor the department with $10,000. And that would have been, oh, you know, 15 years ago. And so that was a lot of money and it was a lot of money for me, right? And I went to the meeting with the PhD in the department that I sponsored to, for him to uh, you know, look through my scripts and help me understand what I was doing wrong in terms of human psychology, my own psychology, um, and improve my closing rate. And for, you know, my, I came from academia and I thought this was the route to go. So I sat down with the guy and he said, I explained him my problem and I wanted him to go through my sales scripts and everything like that. And he said, I'm so sorry, you hired the wrong kind of psychologist. I don't do any of that shit. I'm a cognitive psychologist. And all I do is think about like how information routes itself through the human mind. I was like, oh, I'm screwed. And, you know, and, and the money is already in the university and in the department and gone. I'm like, what can we do together that you could help me? He goes, 
you do not understand how the human brain works functionally. Like it is just a complete black box to you and you're just shooting random information into the brains of the people you're talking to and you don't understand what is happening to the information, how it's routing through. And then he explained to me, uh, Lord S, you know, you know better than anybody that there is a, um, a, a piece of the mind called the crock brain and it is it receives information first. So when you're talking, when you are explaining, when you are showing slides, there's a part of the brain uh, here that's in the uh, brain stem that is the first to process information and it massively truncates, alters, reduces, reassembles information um, based on you and what it thinks it's seen. Is, you know, are you a threat? Are you something that is um, a, a opportunity? Or is there, are you something that just should be mated with? Right? And so it thinks in very, very simple forms, dissects the information you're presenting, and then decides where to send it to the rest of the brain or just to kill it. So until you understand that the crock brain exists and it's getting information um, in the people that you're talking to, you don't understand what's happening with the presentations you're giving. And that just fundamental shift made me so happy that I spent the $10,000 in the wrong place because I learned something I, I probably never would have learned um, without that um, uh, sort of coincidental accident. So more, more answer than question there, Lourdes, but hopefully that's helpful. It is very helpful. Thanks again, Oren. So there's one question from the audience. Um, he read somewhere that you need to tell your story to an investor in three minutes to 44 seconds. Is that true? Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to limit the, um, the language here, but this is very triggering for me. Okay. It'd be good to know what that person's business is, right? But like, honestly, unless you sell lemonade for 50 cents, at the corner of your city street, right? For charity, like I can explain that in three minutes. Like what business can you actually explain in three minutes? If somebody came to me and said, just trying to control the language here. Um, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I have three, I'll, I'll give you three minutes. Oh, that was my fault, Cam. I touched something. If somebody came to me and said, hey, I'll give you three minutes to explain your business, right? I would say to them, um, can you explain your business in three minutes? Like, honestly, is that who is that what you do is you walk around telling entrepreneurs, hey, I'm going to lure you with the hope of millions, right? I'm going to lord over you with my shitty snotty attitude and determine if our fund will put a million dollars or has any interest in your business in three minutes or less. Like, if you want to talk for three minutes about like what we're doing, but if you think I'm going to pitch you in three minutes, you are talking to the wrong entrepreneur. And it's probably obvious, you know, what, what kind of fund you are and what kind of person you are. Nobody can pitch their business in three minutes. I can tell you what industry we're doing, like what we're working on. But if you want to sit down and really hear about our company, let's book some real time to do that. Otherwise, go do whatever it is you think you do. And I'll continue, uh, you know, on my path of growing the company. Right. So you don't have to say it as antagonistically as that. But that is the, I, I say it in that way. And you can find whatever language works for you. You should never allow somebody to say, I have three minutes for you, pitch your business. Thank you, Aaron. And I think it's also from the context of origin story. When we talk about origin story, it's not the business itself, but the founder or the expert pitching the deal. So yeah, so uh, so that but 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 I think investors who come and say, Hey, I have three minutes. Um, you know, why don't you tell me what you're working on? Right. And and go, 
I would just roll my eyes and say, like, honestly, can you pitch your company in three minutes? Right? Because we can't. I can tell you we're in aquaculture. I can tell you that we have a sustainability technology. I can tell you, um, you know, that we're in the market talking to investors. I think we're, you know, one of the leaders in our space. Um, we've got something that can grow 50% year over year and ultimately produce 30% net margins um, on, on um, uh, 60% gross margins and be scaling 50% year over year. If you want to hear about that business, then let's set some time to talk. I think you can do that. Perfect, perfect. So we have a question from Lindsay from the audience. What could be an example to explain winter is coming as a seaweed cultivator to impact investors and to create intrigue on an X price winning solution? Uh, sure. I think the things for me that are clear winter is coming is the uh, the grain situation out of Ukraine, the um, availability of core nutrients, you know, to be produced in a sustainable way and um, distributed at prices that are, uh, you know, affordable for core consumption, right? And, um, and, and here, unless that is solved, right, we're going to be 3D printing food in vats for human beings. So if that's where you want to get your food, or that's you want to see communities that you care about um, get food from is 3D printed in warehouses, then wake up and let's get this piece of the ecosystem working. That's off the top of my head. That's where I would go. Very good. Very good. Because that's, so, that's where I, that's how I would raise the stakes, right? Hey, you know, well, hey, Joey. Hey, Susie, right? Time for dinner. Got some delicious 3D printed um, trout here from the warehouse on 4th and uh, um, McDonald, you know, you know um, um, it's low sodium. So unless that's what the conversation you'll be having with your family in five years, better figure out some other forms of sustainable real food development. Thanks again, Oren. And we're, we have actually five minutes. I'm really impressed how we are on Oh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. And I haven't had a chance to actually tell the audience how I actually met you. I don't even know if you know this actually, but it was actually one of my friends from Vancouver um, that I met five years after I immigrated from the Philippines. And he saw me on Facebook after literally a decade that I haven't talked to him. And guess what he told me? Have you, he, because he knew I was fundraising at that time. And he said, have you actually read the books, Pitch This Curve? from Orin Club and I'm like, who, who, who is Orin Club? <laughs> and so I'm sharing this to the audience because I was talking about community when we first started. We are only as good as the people that we connect with. And so that's how the story of how I ended up reading your books, connecting with you, being in your mastermind group. And now here we are in a partnership with a company, which is actually in sustainable aquaculture. If everybody wants to find out more about that, we can tell about you that later. But Thank you again very much for being on the show, Oren. I really appreciate our friendship. Say my hello to Asher and Amalia and talk again on Thursday. Thursdays, we meet once a week. Correct. Okay, Lord, that's wonderful being with you here today. I think, um, you know, for people within the sound of our voice, uh, you've seen the, the, the formula and the format. You've heard some, you know, discussion around it. Uh, you've seen, you know, Lordess knows how to execute this very well, but we've, We've seen this, we've seen people come here, just adjust the presentations they have 
into this format, go ahead and turn around and just put it back out. Same content in, in this format and get rid of the other stuff uh, and immediately start getting success. So I would encourage, I've showed you here today what to do, a little bit of how to do it, give you a couple examples. You can uh, definitely stay on for the rest of this conference and enjoy yourself. But tonight it's Friday. I'm sure you have stuff going on, but if you're passionate about it, you got a whole weekend to turn around, take these, these ideas and these formulas and get to work. So I encourage you to do that. And for sure, anything is possible if you take this journey in this way. So thanks again, Lourdes. Thanks, Aaron. Okay. Yep. Bye, everyone. So I hope that you learned a lot from that presentation. And so um, you can see on the chat, why don't you drop in your biggest takeaway from that presentation? Because we have a lot more. But the more important thing is we have a lot of information that you're going to be hearing in these next two days. What I want you to do is actually write down what your biggest takeaway and what you can implement right off the bat. Because there's a lot of things that may go sideways and you'll forget. You go back into your work, into your life after the conference. What I wanted to create with our conference is that we'll build it together as a community. You're not alone in this. So with that, Sharad, I'd like to give the mic over to you for our next speaker. Thanks, Lourdes. Uh, we have our next speaker in the house and that is Claire Pribula. And uh, let me uh, do a formal introduction of hers and then hand it back to Lourdes. So Claire is the managing director of the Yield Asia Pacific. She wears multiple hats. She's an expert on venture capital, agribusiness, ag tech. She's an entrepreneur and you know, talks about strategic business development. She's also recognized as a pioneer and ag tech change agent skilled in identifying early stage impactful innovation, assisting founders to advance commercialization while attracting VC money as they move towards profitability. Uh, I'm gonna hand it over to Claire, but before that maybe, uh, Lourdes, you want to also share your story of how you got connected to Claire in the first place. I wanna hear this because I can't remember. <laughs> well. Again, Claire came from personal connection. I met Matt Craze, who you'll be hearing oh, right. again today. And when I was looking for guests for podcasts, I always ask my guests, can you refer somebody who can be our next guest? And Claire and Larry from the Yield Lab Institute were the people that uh, were referred to me because at that time, you guys were doing the Global Aquaculture Challenge. And so um, that's how it came about. Um, and I'm very proud and blessed to have all these connections with me because they have really enriched my aquaculture journey, if I may have to call it that. So welcome, Claire. <laughs> Well, Lord, it's, you're a great connector. You are very good at this. And um, so, yeah, that's right. I remember now it was Matt Craze introduced us and, and it was before, it was when we were just putting together the global, the first global aquaculture challenge. So, so good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate oh, that. I hope, every, hope you can hear me okay. Yes, I can hear and see you okay. So maybe we can start this. And so this is going to be a, di a little different from the first presentation that we have, because this is kind of like a podcast style, interview style. And um, we're going to ask Claire some questions that she's an expert with. But um, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what is venture capital, because that's your expertise. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and it was really interesting listening to Oren, you know, um, uh, how he packaged uh, venture capital. So it was quite, quite fun. Uh, well, um, as, as introduced, I'm Claire Privula, the Managing Director of the Lab Asia Pacific. Um, we, what I, venture capital is like, it's fun. Um, we've been focusing on ag tech. Uh, with the Yield Lab uh, since 2015 was our first fund, and now we have funds on, in every continent in North America, Europe, Latin America, and Asia Pacific. Our fund that Larry and I co-founded is the Yield Lab Asia Pacific. It's so it's, but it's a lot of hard work uh, raising for a fund, hard work, working with our portfolio companies, um, helping them finish their science, advancing their innovation, raising capital for them, hard work, um, but super interesting. We're always finding out new things from the innovators and no, like Warren said, we don't, we never expect that somebody can communicate to us in three minutes uh, what their value proposition or their innovation is. Um, we're, you know, in an early stage, a lot of this is deep science. We're very proud of the work we do in the Lab Asia Pacific in regards to ag tech and aqua early stage investment and the function that we provide in the ecosystem of transforming agriculture and the aqua industry um, of our soon-to-be 14 companies in our fund. And then across all of our the Yield Lab funds, we have 86 companies. Um, but, you know, you know, Lords, you know that ag tech and aqua early stage investment is, is quite challenging. So I thought what I would do is, you know, a picture um, always conveys the message a little bit better. If I can show you an image, is it okay uh, about, you know, kind of giving you a perspective of early stage funds and the overall investor landscape? This is the complexion as we see it of that investor landscape. Let me just um, share from. So, uh, yeah, this, this quadrant although not exactly accurate in regards to the circle sizes, shows that, you know, you have different components. And I, I think this was laid out by Orrin in the previous com, uh, uh, share. Private institutional investors, you know, they're made up of, of private equity and venture capital like us that are uh, maybe 28,000 or more globally, 5,000 in Asia Pacific, family offices, and the private in institutional investors and the family offices, they also have global scope. So this is kind of compartmentalizing them. I'm not meaning that family offices aren't global, but tend to be more regionally focused. There's uh, over 8,000 globally, sovereign and developmental institutional funds, a smaller pool of investor um, investors, and then strategic and corporate and industry associations that do investment. To put context around ag tech impact late stage investing. So I'm not talking about early stage. This is the box uh, where you have funds that are focusing on, on the various stages, but mostly, you know, series B and later. And then to, to give some dimension of, of the focus on early stage funds, this is <laughs> kind of the, the little dot in the middle. And this is ag tech early stage funds. Within that is aquaculture. So even smaller dot. Uh, focusing on the aquaculture industry. And, you know, that's and where we play is there. We're completely devoted to transforming the agri-food space and doing early stage investment. And if you don't do this first piece, that's why we're so passionate about it. You're not going to get the later stage investment. So it's it's quite key and, and important. So let me stop share. Um, 
you know, if I was to take your question a little bit further and talk not just about the investment landscape, kind of you asked about why, what it's like, uh, what venture capital is like also needs to be looked at from um, and the actual investment uh, side, the investor's view. So from aquaculture innovation growth perspective, to give some dimension of the number of deals globally. So I gave you a little bit of picture of, of the focus on early stage investment by venture capital funds as, a, as the overall, in the overall scheme and landscape of investments in general, and how there's just so few of us that are there to help these early stage companies advance. And now if you look at from a deal perspective from aquaculture innovation growth between 2021 and 2022, Aquaculture uh, management inputs, they saw 125 increase in the number of deals. So that was great. Um, an increase in the investment dollars uh, to 160 million. That's a 56% increase year on year. That's great. Animal health, which includes things like uh, breeding and nutrition and across all animals. So this is not just aquatic animals. This is also terrestrial. A 64% increase in the number of deals and a 77% increase in investment. So making that a 357 million, fantastic. So in 2022, aquaculture was within two of the highest growth subsectors in ag tech investments. So that's super. Um, and it's all very encouraging, but there's a but coming. Yet it's still in relation to overall ag tech funding. And, and aquaculture and animal health still represent only 4% of the overall ag tech funding. And I just said that that was aquaculture and animal health. So that's, you know, also terrestrial included. So it's even more a fraction of that. So, so um, of that $10 billion spent, aquaculture was just a few hundred million in 2022. And that's towards all stages of development of investment. So not just new innovation. So you can see how it's really important to have early stage investing um, to be able to help these new innovations um, uh, and and draw the focus of an, an intention and uh, attention of innovators to want to come into this industry. Um, it's really important because uh, uh, blue food is expected to double by 2050. So so um, it's it's imperative that there's an ability to um, comprehensively innovate, transform aquaculture. It's it's absolutely vital. Um, and then and then you know when I was assembling some of those facts for this chat today, um, you know, the question kind of comes up, why are there far less in deals in aquaculture? Um, and, you know, it, it can't be explained in only one simple form, but a, a pretty, a pretty uh, a good assumption is because of terrestrial crops and animal health that are terrestrial. You can see them. They're not underwater, um, you know, in fish and aqua, everything is underwater. So it's an added complexity for technology to cut through. And there are also uh, quite a lot of species. So uh, as opposed to terrestrial, I mean, there's there's thousands of species. So this, this complexity and the variability of all these species and their requirements from a nutrient perspective is, is why we've invested in certain companies and in particular comes to mind with Thai Aqua which, you know, understand that getting the data is tough. And so what, what, what Ty has done is, is comprehensively been able to uh, assemble that data 
um, and basically do a type of a digital twinning by, by generating entire growth forecasts, which can provide the nutritional feed requirements by species, the stage of growth to get them to their fastest uh, and most optimal feed conversion ratio. And so, you know, making some starting assumptions and then with data coming in, recalibrate and it changes over time and adjust to things like uh, that you can't control, like environmental changes, the weather, the ponds configuration, is it lined or unlined? So Wataya, Aqua, or innovation like this can fill in the blanks and plan a plausible production cycle before you even put fish in the water. Um, and, and the tie back to what Lord has started on how, started on how we met. It was actually through the Global Aquaculture Challenge that we got to know what Thai Aqua. So we, we have a, a nonprofit side of what we do. We have the equity side of the funds, but we also have a nonprofit called the Yield Lab Institute, which we use to stimulate innovation in areas of ag, agriculture that need more focus and attention. And, and so it, that's the reason why we created a global aquaculture initiative. It was born out of need. We, we, you know, Although we take equity uh, as a fund, we use the not-for-profit institute to be able to, and it's funded through external sponsors, to pract practically look across all of agri-food, identify those areas. And then it's up to us in funds in the different geographies to identify what's going to be the most impactful for us to focus on our attention. And that's why we led the Global Aquaculture Challenge out of, out of uh, uh, Singapore. Uh, it's a global, it was a global initiative. It isn't a global initiative. Um, but the majority of the other species that you and I eat every day come out of Southeast Asia. So it makes a lot of sense in Southern Asia. Um, you know, uh, and, and it's from doing this that we've deemed that that aqua and ocean is so important and, and necessary for our focus. It's a fast growing protein, um, uh, which is, which if it's done sustainably provides the uh, much needed nutrients that we need. Um, and um, but innovation is needed to be able to do more with less to optimize the yield without sacrificing land or water or the environment. So hopefully that that helped. I can talk more about if you wish, Lord. No, that's great information. Okay. What what struck me from what you all said, Claire, was I didn't even realize this until you mentioned it today. That one of the challenges why it's hard to I guess pitch the aquaculture. Um, project, if you have to call it that, was it's because it's unseen. It's especially if your subtitle like our species is because I tell you, we've been trying to pitch our deal in the last, I don't know, more than a decade. And it was so hard because it takes 10 years to grow. And now that we're harvesting, it gets a little bit easier. But I never even really factored in the invisibility of the species. And so that makes it a little bit more less tangible for investors. Yes. Yeah, it's less tangible. And also from an innovation perspective, it's just harder. I mean, you can't, you can't see, you can't use, you know, the same sorts of methods or technology to be able to, to capture the data as you can a, a terrestrial crop to see the different, you know, aspects of we have innovation that we've invested in that does that, that like Bloomfield that, you know, will go across the crop and, and, and run, you know, 24 hours a day capturing data about the status of of the crop, you know, is there any disease? Are there, is there any damage? Is there, you know, is it ready for harvest? You know, these sorts of things to, to eliminate the labor. What are you going to, you know, it's different. The types of sensors that you need, you know, underwater are completely different. And then to be able to capture all this data and do something with it. 
um, and see the status of the fish and you know how are they how are they um, uh, handling the feed that they're getting you know what's the water quality things like this I mean there's so many different variables that have to be understood and factored in yeah so which leads me to my next question in your experience with sustainable aquaculture investments what have been the most transparent and tangible metrics of success for someone to get funding and how do you handle instances where data or outcomes as we were just talking about are ambiguous yeah um yeah, for us, the investor, um, the economic aspect is probably the easiest. Um, again, if I just, I always find examples help. If, if when we were analyzing, for example, with Thai Aqua, you know, we we could could see that they could save 20% of a ton of feed ingredients a farmer typically needs, and that's the biggest expense of a of a farmer is you know feed, um, and so you know producing more sustainably by utilizing less resources is important. Um, this can be easily understood. It can be validated when we talk to the farmers that, in fact, that this 20% is correct. And so that's easy to see. And then as the increase of in regards to the fee conversion ratio is something also easy to assess. There's you know, production improvement by utilizing a platform that optimizes the nutrients needed and the amount and frequency fed by the species and the stage of growth and the environment. So those outcomes of yield can be measured. The quality of lives can be, you know, easily measured and calculated across the farms or the ponds by the number of employees known. Um, but less tangible are, you know, the impact related, ESG related, you know, such as water quality. It, it is it is expensive and not very feasible for ponds to have lots of sensors everywhere. Be nice, but not possible. Improvement in water quality is performed by the reduction of overfeeding. So it, because when you do overfeed, it increases the, the, the ammonia in the water, diminishes the quality and weakens the fish, opens them up for disease. So being able to, to track the specific waste and carbon can be challenging. And, um, you know, uh, the carbon expended and diminished is challenging. Um, and then the compounded effect of regenerative practices, you know, how, how, how are you regenerating um, and how can you measure that? So if I again use an example like Wataya Aqua, it's been the easiest to measure the economic impact and the number of uh, lives improved and the tons of production and feed ingredients that have been saved uh, via the production improvement and, and you know, through their platforms. That's been pretty direct and easy to understand. Um, by species because of the stage of the fish growth, you know, any changes due to environmental factors, but it's been more difficult. And this is why they developed their, their um, carbon dashboard. It's more difficult to calculate the water waste, um, the carbon footprint. So what you have to do is start by making some impact assumptions that then need to be validated and, and then get a little bit closer and closer on the accuracy um, you know, so for like an example of waste in the Wachaya Aqua example, output in water had to make up the assumptions around kilograms of nitrogen and phosphorus waste. Um, then based on those savings from using the platform, uh, which diminishes the waste from feeding the wrong, wrong nutrients and the wrong amounts, which, you know, builds up the nitrogen and the phosphorus, the wrong, if you're feeding them at the wrong time of day or the wrong amount, that's what happens. So they, they took the example when they first started doing impact measurement of tilapia, you know, because each species is different. That's why this is so complicated. Um, and then they take that number of, in regards to tilapia, the number of farms um, from the current year and the future year. In this example, 
the use of the, through their platform, they were able to eliminate 14 tons of nitrogen and five tons of phosphorus across 40 farms in one year. And then projecting out to in 2027, where they'll be, um, they'll be eliminating 2,800 tons of nitrogen and over 1,000 tons of phosphorus waste. So, you know, started with some assumptions, did the easy stuff first, and then work into what those numbers are going to look like. Same thing with carbon. Um, start with the baseline assumption, the number of farms and mills. And by utilizing their platform, you know, they know that they can get easily a 10% improvement on feed conversion ratio. And then they have a carbon footprint calculator that they use to estimate, you know, help the mills get source ingredients from better locations. Thus, they can diminish their the, the, the amount of uh, carbon expended to be able to access the nutrients that they need to make this their feed. Um, and then, then if you look at the tilapia example in a more nutrient-dense feed for freshwater fish, they're producing like 50,000, 150,000 tons of feed per year with a savings of 50 to 100 kg in, in carbon. So you can see they had to, you know, a lot of work has to be done to get to these impact measurements. It's not just, you know, um, a simple economic calculation. There is a lot of work and, and they actually use their platform to help them do that. Thanks, Claire. That's a lot of information. So maybe I'm going to gear a little bit towards the right brain because there's a lot of left brain information in there. So in your team, when you are basically deciding short-term profitability versus long-term profitability, how do you foster thoughtful disagreement with your team to arrive at an investment decision in an aquaculture sector? Yes, it's a fun question. I mean, it doesn't happen very often because we're a small team. So, you know, we're, and we're all highly involved in all the different work streams. So, so as the due diligence is being done, different parts, um, we're each involved in. So the, the journey begins with us all kind of at around the same destination regarding decisions. The interesting aspect usually happens when you have an independent IC member that weighs in, which we do. And the, you know, they don't have the, the bias of the knowledge that we have about the founder. They don't have the personal aspect of investing in a company, but they, they look at the investment from a pure viability perspective. And, and that's what, you know, I think those are the times when we, we're, we're kind of, um, um, uh, given a perspective that we hadn't thought of. Um, by somebody that has been kind of pure coming into the work that we've done and assessing a company. Um, there, there's only maybe, um, I don't know, maybe one or two examples where we as an, as an IC ever had any, you know, real discussion. And actually one example was from our aquaculture challenge. Uh, you know, Biotic is a company that we have now since invested in. So you can see that we eventually got there in the end. <laughs> But initially, um, and what Biotic does, I should say, is, is tell the audience is that they create a, an, an environment-friendly process for uh, replacing oil-based polymers um, it, with a, a drop in biodegradable replacement to plastic. So it, it, it utilizes the same existing processes for, keep, for creating packaging, but it's, it's all based off of sea algae. So it's circular um, in its design and its modular. Um, and quite cool and creating any kind of packaging. So packaging for, you know, potato chip crunchy bags to see-through bread bags to, you know, the kind of material you need for your laptop. Um, so in this case, this company, um, you know, where 
and this was during the aquaculture challenge. So we had some of the best in the industry that were C-level executives that were weighing in as we were filtering through the different companies to make it in. And uh, where it got kind of hung up with um, in making it through was around scalability. Several of the industry experts weighing in on the decision, you know, felt that that, that might be a challenge. But in the end, uh, what we ended up found, finding out afterwards, they did not make it into the challenge, um, was that, in fact, they were working through multiple partners. They had a very modular solution and it developed that and advanced that during the time that we were running the challenge. And, and that they can source seaweed, any type of seaweed. It doesn't matter the quality. It doesn't matter the cleanliness. It doesn't matter the origin um, anywhere. So it was highly, not only scalable, but could be placed anywhere for manufacturing. So that's why we ended up actually going from a, a no to a yes and investing in them. Very, very interesting, good story on how there's always that different perspective. And unless you know what's in all of that, I guess, categories that you have a checkbox that will qualify it. It's hard to know if one investment is qualified over another, which also leads me to my next question, because in your portfolio companies, I'm assuming that in our sector, obviously sustainable aquaculture category, how do you ensure that they're compliant with regulations, but always stress testing and adapting their strategies for potential future regulation and environmental shifts? Yeah, um, this is is really company by company because each one is so different. I mean, the and what their potential regulatory situation may be. I mean, if you look at, have to take examples when I think through this, like Peptobiotics, which is a company that we've invested in that's um, um, basically doing um, genetic manipulation of, of peptides. Uh, a string of amino acids. So using synthetic biology and then manufacturing through fermentation, these they create um, uh, a, an ingredient that, you know, helps to um, fight bacteria in, in the, in, inside the fish, in the gut, um, and instead of using antibiotics. Um, so the challenge of peptobiotics um, you know, is clear, you know, they've, they've been able to do third-party verification. Um, so it's, so from an innovation perspective, it's quite clear that they're, re, the results are there. So that's easy. So as far as, and, and that they're competitive and, you know, we have to assess where they are against others doing, that are doing, you know, in the same space. So, so we must see this in the due diligence, but, you know, each geography is going to be a little bit different in regards to what's required from a testing perspective, from efficacy, from safety, from environmental impact, things like this. So you have to kind of work through what is the addressable market for a company and then figure out which market they're gonna be focused on. And then based on that market, um, determine what different, what's the regulatory strategy gonna be for, for the company. And um, which also includes the distribution and any sort of handling requirements. Um, in the case of, of Watai Aqua, as another example, outside of peptobiotics, it's a lot less about regulation, more about partnerships and industry accreditation. So, so you know, because you're taking an awful lot of, um, of data and being able to help these different organizations to be able to, to reduce the administrative burden of regulatory compliance. So it's a, 
it's a whole nother aspect of a regulatory strategy uh, for a, a data-driven company like Watai Aqua. Um, those are two different perspectives on the, the topic of regulatory challenges. Perfect. And so good to know that because a little while um, I was also thinking about other than being intangible when people are looking into investment categories or where they put their money in, there's that centralization that this industry is very much, um, I guess, re very regulated. So while we're talking about the global aquaculture challenge, maybe you can share with our audience, what's that journey like? What are some of the key criteria that you guys are looking for when you do the challenge? And has that changed before pandemic, during pandemic, and now it's post-pandemic? Yeah, um, thanks for asking that because um, we feel it's important to continue doing this um, aquaculture challenge because it's just tip of the iceberg with each one, you know, so, so and being able to get innovation from all over the globe um, and identified, we had in our GAC 140 applicants there was a paper written two years ago saying, you know, where's the innovation in aquaculture? And um, actually it's there. You may have to push for it a little bit, but it, it's definitely there. Um, and so we had applicants from all over the world. Uh, the process that we do before we even look for applicants is very thoughtful. So we're, we're talking to people in the industry that are, that are uh, thought leaders like, you know, George Chamberlain from uh, the Global uh, Seafood Alliance to, you know, um, uh, Sylvia Wolf and Aqua Bounty to the World Wildlife Fund, the IDH, you know, so many different people under getting an understanding of what they feel the challenges are so that when we're then pushing and we, we push for the applications, we are looking, you know, for particular things and particular type of innovation. So that's done very thoughtfully before. Um, and then when we do push for applications, we're putting together, you know, a, a, a request for information that's actually filters the, um, are we still connected? I see the screen changing. Oh, you pulled up the aquaculture challenge. Thank you. Um, so, so we actually, you know, filter with questions that are a little bit more detailed and descriptive and asking for things that seem quite obvious, like the value proposition or the vision for their technology as a company or what challenges that they're solving, the areas of impact, the competitive landscape. How do they monetize services, um, their services? So are they, um, you know, um, is it is it a technology driven software as a service? Is it you know how, what's their 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 monetization strategy? What are their growth projections over not just near term but also long term from a five, maybe five year outlook? What's the impact also? You know what what impact they see having in the near term and the long term? Um, the revenue, of course. Uh, also their capital. What kind of capital are they going to be needing? When we do these not-for-profit challenges, we acknowledge the fact that a lot of the innovation coming in is a little bit more nascent than on our equity-taking side. We're on our the Yield Lab um, Asia-Pacific Fund. We're looking for any of our uh, yield, the Yield Lab funds are looking for investable um, and registratable intellectual property um, that's been developed, tested, and proven. Maybe not commercialized, but proven. The science has been proven. And, and the not-for-profit challenges we do, they can be a little bit more nascent. Um, and that's the idea, is that because we're, we're about kicking up 
you know, uh, advancing innovation that gets into the ecosystem for others to invest in. So they may come in with having had some investment. They may have had some grants. They, you know, may just be bootstrapped. Um, so we ask them, what are their capital requirements over the next 24 months? So we know how the aquaculture challenge can help them. All these questions help us determine that. And then, um, and we also ask them, you know, what do they want from us? Because they have, you know, needs and they have expectations and we want to make sure it's something that we can deliver on. And then once selected, we, we select about eight on these challenges. We then start to line up who are those best of the best of the industry that are going to be able to work with these companies and provide them that subject matter expertise, you know, over the next six to nine months. It's not a light touch challenge. I mean, we really, it's a real roll up the sleeve um, and and one-on-one. I mean, they're, these young companies are getting access to to some people that would probably never return their email or their phone call. So it's quite very, it's very cool and 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 heartwarming to see what the founders think of this interaction and accessibility that they get through the challenge um, with C-level executives or uh, seaweed innovation, the, 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 the foremost expert in seaweed being aligned with that expert. So, so these sorts of things um, to help them be able to um, work through areas like their you know, market fit or their go-to-market strategy or their overall business plan or financial plans or their help them with their, you know, as was talked about Orin in the first um, uh, presentation, you know, pitching to investors and customers and, you know, practical sorts of advice on um, measuring the importance and also how to measure ESG impact. Um, sorts of uh, measurements that can then be relayed and communicated to the in- investment community. And then then in the challenge itself, we make sure that we get these companies across those nine months that we're working with them all in front of um, key individuals and strategic corporates so that they, at the end, even though the challenge itself will have one or two winners that get a cash prize, all of the participants will get either an investments out of it, a POC, you know, maybe some partnerships or a commercial relationship. You know, we make sure that everybody gets something out of it in the end. Um, it's not a light touch. It's a lot of work. We put uh, Larry, um, my my partner at the Yield Lab has, has uh, put together the numbers. It's been like three in the last challenge was about three man years worth of work. So it's not a, small thing that we do. So it, the, um, the effort is um, very comprehensive. And, and because of that, I think it makes when, when the winner is announced, it's, um, um, you know, they're, they're, they're extremely happy because they've been through quite a process with us. Thanks, Claire. And we just had like, uh, kudos really for what you guys are doing because I think it's very important that people know that there's this resource that they can go to and you brought a very important point because when I first came into the industry 15 years ago this is what I found was lacking before you're right you can't just send an email to a very big firm and pitch your deal or let them know what you're doing even though it has a big vision and mission around it but what's important what you brought into this 
is the relationships. So I was talking in another group the other day about there's three kinds of capital being financial capital, which most of agriculture companies are looking for, but sometimes forgetting the social capital aspect of the whole category of this is not just about the money, but the people around who is working in this community. So um, again, thank you for doing what you guys are doing. There's a question from the audience. So when is the next challenge? Well, we're putting it together now. Um, you know, we, we unfortunately, our investors on our equity funds wouldn't be happy with us investing their money into a not-for-profit challenge. So we, we solicit external sponsorship to fuel the machine for the challenge. Um, and, you know, and which, which allows not only for the operation of it, but also for the prize money. Um, so that's what we're doing now is we're um, talking to some potential sponsors for this next challenge. And so stay tuned. We, we hope to be able to announce something in the not too distant future. Sounds good. And these are just some questions that people are very interested in. They really love the, initi the initiative that I think a lot of people doesn't know that it exists. So is there an actual aquaculture innovation being focused on small scale producers to revolutionize production and safeguard food security? Yeah, say the question one more time, the last part, what was it? So if there's, an, yeah, if there's an actual, actual aquaculture innovation being focused on small scale producers to revolutionize production and safeguard food security. Maybe you can tell them about um, the two ladies that we interviewed from Indonesia. I think we have Piora. And yeah, we have, there's, 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 well, there's, yeah, there's a lot that are focused on um, smallholders. Uh, I mean, in that one I referenced already, which I aqua is, uh, is something accessible for the smallholder, but also um, Jala tech, which is, of course, of course, the, there's also the the one the, the one big unicorn that happened, which was e-fishery. <laughs> so, I mean, this one you can't ignore, um, you know, hundred million dollar round uh, by e-fishery um, in Indonesia, um, which is really uh, lifts all the boats for anybody in the aquaculture industry with that kind of investment. Um, and Jala Tech is is was part of our challenge, too. And um, uh, Lyris is a smart lady uh, focusing on shrimp, smallholder farmer shrimp industry, being able to, you know, not only assess and provide the sorts of um, data input needed for the farmers to be able to optimize their shrimp production, but also providing a marketplace so that that can be sold. So, um, and then connecting, you know, to the right kind of nutrients to be able to optimize their feed conversion ratio. So it's kind of a one-stop shopping for the smallholder farmers and helping them to be able to produce more with less. Um, there's lots out there. There's smoke focused on smallholders. There's um, uh, seaweed innovation. That's that's you know a, a dashboard that's um, looking at this, the seaweed components. Um, there are um, gosh, there's um, uh, as far as addressing disease in in fish. There's uh, what peptobiotics you mentioned, Tiora, which was also in our um, global aquaculture challenge, both are looking at the, the 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 how to eliminate the need for antibiotics, but in completely different ways and focusing on completely different types of 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 animals or fish. Um, yeah, there's there are a lot, and then there's the whole credit side of smallholders. You know, how do you get um, you know uh, the challenge is to be able for a smallholder to be able to access 
um, the, the financing that they need from an accredited lender. Um, you know, oftentimes smallholders will reach out for in a, in a, in a frantic effort to get some, some cash from somebody who's kind of dodgy at a high interest rate and inevitably they can't pay it back and then they lose everything. So the whole um, uh, industry around uh, lending, uh, we have a couple in our portfolio that are terrestrial and then others that are in the industry that are focused on um, aquaculture to be able to provide not only that, that security of getting an accredited loan at a reasonable interest rate, but for the lender to be able to understand, that's why they don't do any lending. No accredited institution is going to lend to a smallholder farmer with you know, such a high risk of not being paid back. They want to know that that capital is being used for the purposes of which it was um, given. So it's for the inputs for the farm only, not for other things. So you know, having a smart card to deploy that with is important so they can see how it's being used. And also before that, to understand the farmer better, you know, what has been their yield? You know, uh, what, what are they growing? You know, uh, um, how, how is this a secure, what, how is this a secure loan to know that their output is going to be guaranteed? So, and technology is there to be able to provide that. Thank you so much, Claire. We're so excited for your next challenge. And who we can, I hope we can do together to partner, but last questions, not the least. So um, I'm so excited that you're joining our mastermind just because mm. there's a lot of information that you bring to the table. And I always share this with people on the show, on the podcast, that I mentioned social capital, having a community. One thing I really appreciate about you is you're really very generous in terms of sharing not only information, but your contacts, obviously your expertise in this industry, but I am really so grateful that you're in my realm of influence. And now I get to share you with the community. So thank right. you very much for being in the show. I, I'm excited for it. And, you know, we, it's, this is such a broad, deep, comprehensive industry, just on its own aquaculture, that you can't possibly know everything. And you can't possibly solve every challenge if we if this is a you know this is going to require all hands on deck if we're going to transform the aquaculture and the ocean and and all these different uh, across all these different species it's going to require everybody to work together there should be no sense of competitiveness here i mean if we don't do this uh things aren't going to go well for us our, the next couple of generations from a food system perspective and and that's the reason why you know it's important to be collaborative and and know that we can't possibly do everything we can't possibly know everything but we can most certainly um share and collaborate together and if we do that in a more comprehensive sort of way I think that we've got a really good chance at uh, at helping this industry transform rapidly, which is what we all want. Thank you very much. I always say hashtag together is better. Thank you, so right. Thank you so much, Claire, for your time and obviously Thank your you. expertise. And I look forward to our first mastermind call. I am really grateful for having you in my life, not only personally, but professionally, but um, to all our audience. Let's all give, I do like this on Zoom to give a warm applause to our speakers. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Lourdes. Thank you for uh, for being a, um, a thought leader and for, you know, you're, you're, you're really something the way you get yourself out there. And uh, over these, you've been a, a marvel to watch over these last couple of years 
how you navigate. So thank you for putting this platform together. I, I really appreciate it. And I, and I enjoyed meeting you all. And thank you to all the listeners. Thank you, Claire. Wow, so drop on the chat, what's your biggest takeaway from that session? And we have a lot more, and this is really exciting that um, Claire's also part of our SAM, Sustainable Agriculture Mastermind. Um, you can check all the information, we'll tell you more about later. But for now, Sharad, I wanted to bring you in, what's your biggest takeaway from those two speakers? Are you back? Yeah, <laughs> and obviously the audience. I was listening very intently, and uh, what I can say is uh, it has been uh, accelerated uh, learning for me uh, in terms of understanding the VC world and how uh, SMEs and other organizations need to equip themselves and present themselves. So it's not only about your pitch deck or your presentation, it's also about how you narrate your story. And that's very important. And then, uh, you know, how are you going to change the world? How are you going to make this world a better place? You definitely need to be addressing that. I mean, I, I uh, kind of wear a VC hat because I'm an advisor to a VC firm in the Middle East, uh, mainly in the Web3 domain. And I get a lot of very enthusiastic young, youngsters, you know, who present their deck. And when I ask them, how are you going to change the world? Sometimes there is complete silence because they have not addressed this at all. And I think uh, everybody has to be uh, you know, ready and willing to answer the, that question because the onus is on us with you know, everything that we see around us, the effects of climate change and um, you know, sustainability has to be at the forefront. You just can't have a mission vision statement uh, or a ESG policy on your website. You need to walk the talk and implement everything. And I'm quite fortunate to be based in Dubai where the next COP28 summit is going to be held later this year. And uh, a lot of organizations globally are coming here. Almost 10,000 people are going to be descending in those two weeks in Dubai. And uh, UAE wants to showcase uh, all the sustainability ventures that they are investing in. And I read a post recently that Middle East is becoming the ATM for the world. So clearly they have the resources and they need to put it uh, you know, to good use. So yeah, exciting times. Um, I'm sure our audience also got their share of takeaways. And uh, I think we are going, since we are exactly on time, we are going to have a 20 minute break now. And I don't want our audience to go away anywhere because two very exciting speakers are coming up next. It's going to be Tony Chen, who's going to be talking about AI, how artificial intelligence has a role to play in sustainable aquaculture. And that will be followed with another conversation that Laudis will be having with Matt Grace, who's going to talk about data in sustainable aquaculture. So take a 20 minute break, stretch your legs, have your coffee and come right back. So, Lodis, thank you for, you know, everything that you have done for us in terms of organizing this and, uh, you know, the chats you've had with our speakers. Um, so, yeah, let's take a break and uh, come back in 20 minutes.
And while you're on a break, if you finish just having your coffee or your tea, make sure that you check the slides and that you can book a call with us or how we can help you in terms of your next steps. So go do that and have a little bake, maybe have a little bit of movement since it's been a really two exciting speakers and we have a lot more. So I'll see you after the break. Thank you. See you on the other side. Welcome and back. we are back. back. I hope everybody enjoyed their 20 minutes. Uh, do share with us uh, in the chat what you were up to in those 20 minutes. Uh, all right, let us switch gears and we are going to be talking artificial intelligence. Uh, I think when chat GPT came in November last, it caught everybody's imagination and hijacked all conversations that were happening on the internet. And uh, now uh, generational AI has become mainstream. Uh, my company recently published a document with 500 AI tools that can boost your productivity, both at home and at work. So you have to be living under a rock not to have gone through this experience of how AI can change our lives for good. So time to introduce uh, our next speaker. We have Tony Chen on, he's in the house. He's going to be talking artificial intelligence in sustainable aquaculture. And let me introduce Tony very quickly to you. He is one of the co-founders of Manolin Aqua, which is one of the industry leading aquaculture prediction companies. He's also the CEO and focuses on health analytics for aquaculture. I'm gonna hand it over to Tony to take this forward. And then Lourdes is going to have a fireside chat with him. And audience, please uh, put your questions in the chat. Uh, difficult ones for Tony because he's talking AI. Let's see if AI can help Tony answer all your questions. So over <laughs> to you, Tony. All right. Can, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Yes. Sounds okay. Perfect. All right. I will open up my presentation and we can jump right into it. Excited to be here. Excited to share kind of our, our experience with, with AI and aquaculture. Um, as a great introduction, Shrod gave me a, a good introduction as to my, my background. But yes, I'm the CEO of Manolin and we're a predictive company focused on data intelligence within aquaculture. And today I was asked to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and how it's going to impact aquaculture moving forward. And I think the... Sorry. And a few of the things that I'll touch on, I'm going to spend pretty much the first third of, of my presentation talking about AI and the history behind it. Give everybody a crash course as to what AI means, what does machine learning mean, and what does how does ChatGPT apply in the scope of that. From there, I'll talk about specific use cases within aquaculture in the current market, um, and then talk about a little bit of the work that my company has been working on and some of the projects we have been engaged with as far as applying AI into the field and specifically behind aquaculture. I'm going to assume most people here understand aquaculture at a high level, fish farming and, and, and whatnot, and some of the challenges many of the other speakers are talking about it. So I'm going to focus a little bit more on the tech side um, and, and talk specifically about AI and machine learning. So I'll jump right into it. 
I think first things first is just to identify and define what AI is. I think everybody has been hearing big words, AI, machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, and it's very hard to kind of break everything down into a clear, concise picture. But really, I think this image summarizes it the best. So to start, artificial intelligence is a very big bubble, and deep learning and machine learning are specific applications of AI within that larger broad category. At the high level, artificial intelligence really is the ability of a machine to imitate human behavior. So for me, I study computer science at MIT, graduated roughly 10 years ago, and this was a big part of my courses, was, was learning about AI, learning about computer models, and the history behind all of it. Um, I think it's been fascinating as how it's come into the mainstream really over these last couple of years, but the history, the math, everything that's been developed around this topic has been going on for the last couple of de decades. It's almost as old as, as fish farming when you talk about the industrial scale. Um, I'll go through some of kind of those, those specific uh, time periods and specific events that have happened historically, but at the large scale, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning. I think when everyone thinks about artificial intelligence, the Jetsons 60 years ago had it correct as far as some of the applications that will come out of it. Robots, being able to imitate human speech, smartwatch it, LCD screens, um, all of the things that the Jetsons talked about is what we're talking about today. AI really encompasses all of that. But to give a little bit of history and some of the particular events that have happened across the scope of artificial intelligence, I think it's important to keep in mind that the math and science has been developed for many, many years. A lot of things have developed that, that have enabled it to scale even more, but I really wanted to touch on a few different time periods and points in time to really set the stage for, for where it's going to go. So AI was first termed back in 1955 by John McCarthy, and the first artificial neural network was actually designed in the 50s, I believe at Princeton. Um, the idea of imitating how human neural networks work, how we send signals across our body to activate memories, to activate motion, how could that be replicated in a machine state? The idea for it has been developed since the 50s, but what has really changed in the last 50 years has been computing power and the ability to translate this math and science into large-scale computing. And to be honest, we haven't been able to capture the impacts and been able to capture that the math properly and really scale it up until really the last 10 years or so. So a couple few big touch points, a lot of AI research, particularly through the 90s and early 2000s, was focused on video games and, and different games that humans would play. People were, were developing models to beat humans in checkers. Then it became Deep Blue and IBM beating Kasparov in chess in 1997. Then it became Watson winning Jeopardy. These were all games with, with defined uh, criteria and a defined number of moves that that you could identify to optimize an actual win for. IBM Watson was slightly different, but still the same thing applies. We had large data sets. We've really focused on how do you tag data and be able to identify winning outcomes. For me, I put myself onto this timeline just to time point, you know, my entry into this space, because what I talk about is a lot of what I learned in college, I felt like this was decades 
of actual research. This, I don't know how much further it could go. I think the biggest surprise for me since that point in taking these classes has been all of the development and development and how much change has happened and how much outcomes and products have been developed across that space. For example, when I was going through college, my dad, who is a pretty high level Go player, told me computers could never predict or be able to beat a human in Go. Compared to chess, this was orders of magnitude more as far as what the problem space looked like. There would be no way that a computer could, could, could beat a human. Three years later, that happened. So the acceleration that happened kind of from that 2011 time point has been astronomical. And really, I think we intend for it to continue. So the AI community, when you look across the other achievements, really in the last five to six years, whether it's self-driving cars, whether it's AlphaGo, or whether it's ChatGPT, these are just time points in time for where artificial intelligence where will actually go. And next, I'll talk about some of the more nitty-gritty details behind it. So at the end of the day, AI is really just a collection of tools and a collection of tools that can be used to imitate human behavior, right? And the two biggest ones that, that, that I'm going to touch on today are supervised learning and generative AI. Supervised learning, I'll talk about as what has really happened over the last 10 years or so and our ability to label data correctly. The future will be generative AI. And that's where ChatGPT falls into. And in the course of this next section of my presentation, I'll break down each one of these and give you a crash course as to how these models have been developed in the particular use cases before jumping over to the aquaculture side. So jumping into supervised learning, again, this is where majority of the work has taken place. When you think about commercial settings and really how big data has scaled over the last 10 years and the different outcomes, it's all been powered behind supervised learning. And quite simply, supervised learning, the easiest way to describe it is the ability to predict what happens given one input and what that output will actually be. So if given input A, what will output B be coming out of that? And something as simple as this concept has taken years and decades of research to get to a point that we can make it commercially applicable. But here are some of those, though, those examples. So I've written down three different examples in, in the real world as to how we've used supervised learning and the art of labeling things to develop purposeful use cases. So when it comes to chess, you can take any position on a chessboard and identify the output from that position. Will we win or will, will, will we lose? When you train that with a computer and a supervised learning algorithm, you can identify whether you're going to win a game of chess or not. That was the research that went on to develop Deep Blue back in the 90s. In more, 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 more recent times, we've seen how road footage or footage that, that, that you collect off of, off of vehicles to be able to identify positions of other cars. So imagine if we take a picture of the street, we could count the number of cars. And that position is extremely valuable for developing self-driving cars. But what we can do is take a million images, tag all those images with the number of cars in it, and over time train the computer to identify how many cars are actually in that image. And I think the most lucrative example of supervised learning has been in the ad space. So everything, if you envision Google, if you envision Facebook, Instagram, Netflix, Spotify, all their recommendation engines all the ads they are serving to, to, to a phone or to a computer, it's based on this logic of, I'm going to show something based on your user profile, and we're going to predict whether you're going to click on it or not. 
And over time, what we're going to train the algorithm to do is to identify those pictures that you want to see and that you will click on. Over time, this can be a very powerful mechanism, as we have seen across social media and really these last 10 years as far as the ad space. That's definitely the most lucrative application of how supervised learning has impacted lives over the last 10 years. And to describe exactly how a supervised machine learning algorithm works, it really is just a couple different components. Say I wanted to develop an, an algorithm to identify whether the picture I'm looking at is a lion or a dog. Well, the first thing that, that, that we need is the labels in that bottom left. So identifying what categories we want to identify in our algorithm. In my case, I want to identify if a picture is a rat, a lion, or a dog. And then we go on to step number two and create some labeled data. So this would be taking a ton of pictures of different animals and tagging them, making sure that we understand whether it is a dog, a cat, or dog, a lion, or a rat. You feed both of these into your model training algorithm, and then it's going to generate a predictive model for you that, that will be able to map any new image, any new picture that we've seen towards those, two, those three labeled categories. So when you send in a brand new test data, the algorithm will give you a guess as to whether it's a lion or a dog. And again, as data has scaled, the performance of these algorithms have also grown a ton. And that's really the story of the 2010s. And since I came out of college, what we've seen is amounts of data have just scaled up tremendously. And as a result, we've been able to develop large AI models that have highly performant capabilities. And the results have been really, really good, to be honest. So we've gotten very, very good at taking, scaling up data and being able to tag that information. But if this is kind of the last 10 years and what's happened you know, in the, from 2010 to 2020, what do we expect with the next generation? What is generative AI? And this would be the category of chat GPT, a lot of the art models that, that we have seen, but generative AI is really the next phase and what we see as kind of the, the next big, big boom when it comes to artificial intelligence. And to, right now I'll walk through you through exactly how generative AI works. So most people have probably played, I assume most, if not everyone on this call has probably typed something into chat GPT and seen the outputs. So typically, right, we type in a prompt. I believe that aquaculture will blank, and then the algorithm can come up with a response for us. In this case, it will be the most sustainable global food system in the world. And how this works is you have to keep in mind, it, it seems like it's a magic box, but much like the rest of, of artificial intelligence research, it's really built off previous tools. And the tool that generative AI has been built off of is actually supervised learning. And what I just explained to you and, 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 and the algorithm and, and that particular tool. But what it does is generative AI takes supervised learning and just continuously uses it to predict the next word. So how it actually works is if we give it an input of, I believe that aquaculture will blank, the algorithm will automatically try to come up with the next word. And in this case, it will come up with feed, and then it will immediately feed, it, feed itself back that particular output and generate a new output. So believe that aquaculture will feed the world. That's how it goes step-by-step step to generate long-form text. And this is why when you type into ChatGPT, they can, it, can, it can write an entire novel for you. It's endless as far as its opportunities because it's just taking supervised learning and just continuously iterating over it. 
a model like ChatGPT is considered a large language model. They use over billions of words to train it. And that is what you see as the output. But this is all really, really exciting. I think when at this stage in the world of AI, people haven't quite figured out how generative AI will impact the commercial setting yet. Obviously, it can replace copywriting, it can replace, you know, a basic service tasks, or you can talk to it. But I think the potential for it in the commercial setting is even further than 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 just being able to generate words. It's very similar to the ways of the fact that once the AI community was able to beat a chess player, that really opened the doors for all these new outputs, whether it's automated driving or uh, Watson, all these different outputs came out of that type of, of actual research. The same will happen with something like ChatGPT. But this is all great, but I'll transition now more into the aquaculture side. Well, what does this mean for aquaculture? Well, one of the things that I think that has really developed and what I'm so surprised by is the amount of tooling that has taken place over the last 10 years. When I went to school and if somebody asked me to write a supervised machine learning algorithm, I would have to start from day one. The amount of code that would need to be written just to generate, just to generate a model was astronomical. You had to write the actual math behind the neural nets to make that happen. In just the last 10 years, the amount of tooling that's taken place has really changed that. And was, what, what that means is it's applicable across industries that maybe aren't quite as large. So let's take, for example, let's take, for example, if we wanted to build a supervised machine learning model for fish. This is something that many companies have done and continued to, to build on upon. You see this across salmon, you see this across shrimp. You've basically seen it across every single market, but in general, the, the process would be the similar. If I wanted to, to generate some labels, that would be the first step. Say I wanted to identify small fish versus big fish. Then in step two, you would create a large data set of labeled data. So take a ton of different photos of different fish, attach them whether this is a small fish or a big fish, and then and then feed in feed develop the model and then feed in some test data and then the algorithm itself would be able to identify whether you have a big fish or small fish but what most people don't understand or, or I, I it's hard to see how difficult it is to really build this model training and prediction piece right in the middle and today i'll show you exactly how easy that can be i'm going to go ahead and reshare my screen real quick and show you guys a different piece um, but i wanted to show you some of the tooling that that is available to developers and what really makes me really excited about the future of artificial intelligence if the panelists could also share their, or sorry, open up their cameras real quick, that would be super helpful for me. All righty, bear with me here. I've been told you shouldn't try to do a live demo, but we're going to try to do exactly that today. We'll see if technology works with us today. All righty, so we have, everyone can see my screen again. All right, so what I have here is actually only seven lines of code, but what this will do is it showcases the ability to use machine learning to identify people and everything in the middle of that picture of generating a model and generating an output with today's with today's tooling developers can stand this stuff up extremely quickly. So what I'm going to do is take a picture of our panelists, make sure you guys smile. There we go. 
I'm going to copy that right in. And I just pulled some of these algorithms from, from other developers who have developed different models for detecting faces. I'm going to put in, this is the Aqua Connect conference. Make sure I spell things correctly. load in our picture and what it should do it's this is a model that i've pulled from others who it's supposed to train on whether it can detect a face or not so if i run this right now on a live image that we just took it was able to detect every single person in this photo so in seven lines of code we we we've been able to identify and potentially count how many people were were in these photos and we could do the same across aquaculture but this is just an example of of where 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 this tooling is i could build this in 5 to 10 minutes whereas 10 years ago this would have taken a developer years of actual work to get to that is just how quickly this this market and, and this industry has changed and i'll take it even a further a step further it, it, we can with generative ai i don't even have to write the code i can ask chat gpt to develop a yolo machine learning model in python to detect detect the number of fish in a photo if i type something like this into chat gpt it will not only give me a way to understand what i need to do to collect these photos but it'll also give me the actual code and with this i can immediately scale this up and apply machine vision models to an entire data set and start collecting even more information the speed and pace at which we can develop these types of AI solutions is just so different than what it was just a few, a couple years ago. But that's what gets me so excited about the potential. But I'll switch over, go back to my other screen and share you and, and talk a little bit about how I see it developing within the field of aquaculture. All righty. I think that demo worked everyone, but at the end of the day, it really is an example of, of, of where model training and prediction, as long as you have the data on the other sides, it's very easy to start to build these types of models and replicate what a human can do at the commercial scale. But so within aquaculture, we already see a couple different use cases, and a lot of it has been developed by various startups across the industry, improving feeding, using cameras to identify pellets and identify fish with an image and, and, and in, in an image as well as in video footage really enables farmers to feed more efficiently. They can measure waste. They could adjust feeding plans. They can even have the system automatically do it. You also see similar applications across uh, hatcheries and inventory counting. So being able to estimate biomass, being able to estimate counts. These are all problems and, and solutions that the industry has been working with AI products to help farmers better improve yields, to improve the health of the animals. But I think what's interesting here is I've shown a lot of different examples, but why is everything a camera? So why does whenever we think about AI and aquaculture, the only examples people point to are cameras. It's, I think it comes down to a couple different factors. And one I'll talk about that I get brought up a lot is this concept of shit in, shit out. So people, and what this largely correlates to is people believing that if you're passing a model bad data, 
you're going to get bad results. And for the most part, that's pretty true. And that's why imagery has been such at the forefront of collecting data for the industry, because aquaculture, quite honestly, just doesn't have much data. There's not much data that we can run models on top of, but imagery is one that you can access very quickly and it's fairly correct. So what you see on the image is what is happening in the world. So if we're able to model that, then you end up with very clean data. But for us, I actually believe that aquaculture is generating a lot more data that that is maybe considered shitty, but in our opinion, we can clean it up. So one way that we look at our company here at Manolin is that we're the janitors of the industry. Our, it's our responsibility to clean up the data that is available in order to apply it in a couple of different unique ways using machine learning algorithms to have better outputs for farmers and better outcomes. So our approach is that we tap into the systems of, of various farmers. Our primary market is working with salmon farmers, but what we do is we tap into their existing data sources, whether it's lab data, whether it's inventory data, feed data, environmental data, we continuously clean up that information, but that means we're able to deliver some actionable results on the other end. And a few of those really important actionable results that AI and machine learning will, will, will be able to, to improve on are disease forecasting, being able to uh, sorry, disease forecasting, being able to accelerate the science behind aquaculture. And, and, and lastly, be able to develop better growth models and more predictive results for farmers. At the end of the day, what we all understand is aquaculture is a very unpredictable industry. The more predictable we can make it, the more stable it can become and the faster it can grow. A couple of the examples that we deliver with our customers, one is on disease forecast. So what we're doing is applying machine learning models to understand how diseases are going to spread. At which point do farmers have risk of developing a disease? Being able to prevent white spot disease or ISA, some of these diseases have really crippled aquaculture industries around the world. And I believe that AI machine learning has a way to solve those challenges. Another exciting thing that 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 cleaning up the data and applying machine learning to can help with is accelerating research. So just last week, we actually launched our partnership with Vera Morris, the algae oil company, um, and we did a study over what is the optimal EPA and DHA levels that you should be feeding Atlantic salmon, not only in a lab setting, but in a commercial setting. What we did here was utilize our Manila network and farmers that who have submitted us data and scaled up the most recent research on this topic by a hundred, a hundred thousand X. So the previous study was over 2000 fish and it was just conducted over the last couple of years. We were able to expand this study to 230 million fish over the course of the last decade. But this is an example of accelerating research that will be able to drive better outcomes. One of the biggest challenges is what you hear that's happening in the lab and what happens in field trials is nothing the same as 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 what is happening in a commercial setting. Being able to clean up the data and continuously process it enables us to be able to predict these types of outcomes. And then the last piece that we're, we're really excited for is as you collect more and more data, you're going to be able to target specific models that will help farmers predict outcomes much better. One particular method that we are looking at is looking at clustering data. So we know that not all farms are the same. Why does every single salmon farmer use the same growth model or the same specific growth rate? You can't expect that every single situation is going to be the same, but with enough data, we could be able to tailor out 
all right, if it's one specific location in the world, what is that personalized growth rate going to look like? What are the personalized risks you see given your, your genetics, given the conditions you're raising your fish with, and given what you are feeding them? That, that is where, where we see kind of the opportunities as data continues to scale. And with that, that's everything that, that I wanted to share. Happy to answer some questions and look forward to hearing from everyone as part of this conference. Thank you very much, Tony, for saying that. Um, all that, especially a demo, uh, is great. I know you've always been maverick with your presentation, so that was actually awesome to see. <laughs> we have a question from the audience. Does Manolin also work with REST facilities? We, we are starting to. Um, so it's RAS facilities, I think, are really exciting because there's so much you can control. And the amount of data that's been generated is so, so, much, so, so much more than what you see in other settings. Um, so short answer is yes, we are starting to work with different RAS systems. Thank you. And just for the audience information, I actually met Tony because I saw him do a presentation during COVID, actually, when you were one of the speakers with the Global Seafood Alliance um, events. And then um, I got in touch and then you've been in my podcast twice now. So uh, it was just so good to see the progress that everyone's doing in the industry. But your field specifically just really took off quite quickly when chat GPT even before that, you're way ahead, actually, of ChatGPT, if I may have to say, because you've been doing this for quite some time now with Manolin. What is the sure. vision behind Manolin? How did you guys ended up thinking about creating the company, actually? Yeah, I mean, our, our founding story was that my co-founder and I are both data guys, computer science folks. We, 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 we were, we're working for the U.S. government. Um, I was in at the FDA and the DOT. Um, my co-founder, John, was at the Department of Defense, but we were both working on big data systems. Um, from there, we actually discovered oyster farmers and thought they were running the most fascinating businesses. But many of the questions that the oyster farmers had, I'm sure many of the people as part of this conference have as well, are why are my oysters dying? When are they, they, they dying and how do we prevent these issues from happening? We're losing half our stock every year and it would be great if that wasn't the case. And for us, we saw this as an opportunity where data could fit in. But what we quickly learned was that there wasn't much data out in the field. Farmers collected information on pen and paper, and there wasn't enough large-scale data to really understand the trends. So what we saw was the opportunity between where aquaculture needs to be and the missing solutions. We saw data as a big, big had an opportunity to fill that gap. There's no way we're going to be able to raise thousands of generations of fish the same way that we have done with, with cattle and chicken. We need to find ways of accelerating the actual knowledge and science behind it. And that's where, where big data can really be applied. I'm so happy that you guys did. Saw that opportunity at a time when everybody was really kind of scrambling with brick and mortar aquaculture. So this just catapulted the industry to a whole new different level. So do you think AI should be regulated? That's also one of the questions from our audience here. No, I mean, it absolutely should. Uh, it's, I, I think that is one field that we haven't quite figured out yet as far as what is, what is the right rules around it? Who owns the models? Who owns the data? It's, we're in the middle of identifying that. There's going to be regulations coming across. I think it's going to be what has, what I think is interesting is it's been challenging to prove data privacy from social media. Everyone's been concerned on personal data from that standpoint. We don't even have regulations around that. 
being able to develop it for AI is going to be another upcoming challenge, but it does need to happen. And I do think it needs to be regulated, particularly if you look at military applications or other workforce applications, but there, there is some issues with it. Um, I don't know if I have any answers for, for, for what that regulation should look like, um, but it definitely will be. And our next question is from Pagati. What can be implications of neurofuzzy model-based feeding decision system for fish and aquaculture? I'm not oh, sure what a... neurofuzzy model-based is. To be honest, I'm not sure if I know either, but it's as far as automated feeding systems, I mean, I think the argument, the argument we talk about a lot, and we've seen it happen in AI in many different fields. So first was medicine. Autonomous driving is another one. Um, there's obviously going to be downsides. I personally think from the performance standpoint, it's going to be much better. I think you can make arguments. So the comparison I make is self-driving cars. I believe that automated self-driving cars will be better at scale than all humans combined at, at a certain point in time. Now, when that AI, will it be perfect? No. Will it make mistakes? Absolutely. And I think the same will happen with feeding. But on a whole, I think it will be a much more cost-efficient way to raise animals, and it will lower the operating costs for the farmers. If you look at what's happening in salmon and the amount of people it takes to feed a pen, they have full-time staff that are sitting there continuously feeding. That is an operating cost that is extremely high that AI can perform much better. And I think you have to view it as, as what the outputs are for the farmer. Will you be able to save money? Will you make more money and raise healthier fish in the long, long, long term? Great. And so my next question then becomes, um, do you think that AI will replace the people in aquaculture or AI and humans can work together? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I think it's a very interesting question. I think from everybody in the AI community, you won't be able to replace humans in the near term. It's We're still far away. For as good as ChatGPT is, there's plenty of mistakes that it makes. It can augment what people can do, and I think that's what we're most excited about. But its ability to really pre get rid of farmers or get rid of people in as part of this process – it's not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, I'll say one of the things, um, one of the, I showed kind of supervised training, right? And, and tagging images. Majority of that tagging right now is actually done by people. All these a or vision companies, these camera companies, they send their imagery to workforces in India, to Bangladesh, to be able to tag them with sea lice, to estimate biomass. That's how these models are being developed. So we're still far away from, from the place that AI will replace all jobs. Can it replace some jobs? Yes, but technology's been doing that since 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 its creation. And so, do you think also that AI can predict biomass? Absolutely. It's uh, I I think it's it's the ability to do it better than what humans can. I mean, how does most biomass estimation is done by sampling right now? You sample a number of fish, uh, and and scale that up and assume that is what you have, or you are looking at feeding patterns and and basically use your FCR rates as an estimate for what that biomass will be. Can AI re replicate and 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 come in there? Absolutely. The technology is there. I think the issue is whether the cost makes sense. You're seeing so many solutions being deployed across salmon extremely profitable industry with farmers with tons of money, but its ability to predict it at correctly all the time is still a challenge. But will it be able to predict it? Absolutely. There's so much different technology. It doesn't have to just be cameras. We can use sonar. You can use sound. There's different ways to piece together this, this information, but absolutely, we should be able to predict biomass.
Yeah, that was a question from Edna, and she was talking in particular about harvesting a particular cage, say a tilapia cage, and which brought to your point, will FCR um, for the audience's feed conversion ratio that can also be calculated through AR. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, happy to. Um, I, I think the answer is going to be yes as well. I mean, what you're seeing in a, one of the big questions in salmon was how much, how much feed was actually wasted, right? How much feed falls through the cage that doesn't get eaten by, by the actual animals? Well, with these AI cameras, they're able to see every single pellet whenever it falls through and doesn't make it to a fish. So using that information, you can calculate a much more accurate FCR than you could historically. Perfect. So what do you think is next with AI, with generative coming on and um, talking about future trends? What's next other than generative that you think is going to happen and what's not changing? Yeah. So I, I think a good way to explain it is historically, again, kind of this last 10 years, right? What we've been really good at is with complete data sets, being able to predict what the outcome is. So with an image, we're getting very good at being able to count how many fish are actually in that image. What generative AI is doing is actually generating data for you outside of that. So it's able to expand those models. It's not based on historic, it's based on historical data, but it's being able to generate something brand new. That's why when you talk to ChatGPT, it can write you a new book every other minute, and it's going to be brand new, something you've never seen before. What that will mean and, and what I'm really excited for, if you think about the future of aquaculture, how do you apply generative AI to incomplete data sets? So we don't know how the oceans are going to warm. We don't know how it's going to change. Our historical data is wrong because the oceans are warmer now than they've ever been. So how do you forecast what's going to happen? You can't use historical data as that model, but generative AI can fill in those gaps and give you those options a lot better. But that's where I see it being applied because there's so much incomplete data sets. We have so many farms that submit us data, but they didn't collect a historical salinity or a historical temperature value. But with generative AI, we're going to be able to fill in those, those gaps and be able to predict much better on top of that. Sounds great. And Elizabeth asked a question. Um, do you have a training platform for AI in Medellin? Um, I'm going to need a little more clarification on that question. Um, if, if she's referring to a training platform as far as people or staff or our actual platform, um, I'm, I'm kind of a little unclear on that particular question. Okay. Well, we'll ask for more um, clarification about that question, but know that um, being the community, we can all uh, di direct the questions. And then later in the mastermind, we can have like a probably a hot seat when we can address some of the particular specific issues for each audience. So our last question is, and she said it's an anonymous attendee, so reveal yourself. <laughs> this might be a long shot. Do you think AI can be used to breed new or bring back extinct species? Oh, that's a... Uh... That's a great question. Um, I personally think yes. It's it, it goes back to to the previous question that that you just asked, Lourdes, about you know where where does generative AI come in? Um, I th one aspect that I didn't talk about was actually on DNA sequencing and kind of those large data sets because that's what is required to bring back some of these these other extinct species is is being able to understand those types of of the DNA makeup. How can we actually replicate it? And generative AI could potentially fill in some of those gaps for other species and other types of animals. I definitely think it's possible whether a GMO GMO kind of extinct species is something we should be talking about ethically. That's another question, but from the science side, I think it's possible. 
Well, thank you so much again, Tony. So much valuable information. As always, when I talk to you, I learn a thing or two or more. So thank you very much again for your time. Is there one last words that you wanted to share with our audience? Uh, no, I mean, if you guys are interested in, in what we're working on, my information's on the screen. Happy to chat, happy to, 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 to hear more questions and to hear more thoughts. Thank you so much again, Tony. Let's do like a warm applause with Tony. Thank you. It was so nice to see this demonstration that you did live actually, even though it was a little risky. So thank you again for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Hey. Well, that was a really good presentation. So you guys can drop on the chat. What is your biggest takeaway from Tony's presentation? And for me, it was that demonstration that with photo and camera, how chat GPT and programming works and that way that the AI is actually thinking what you're going to say next or what's going to next and what the answer is to your next question. So with that, I didn't have to predict because I know, <laughs> Sherad, maybe you can introduce our next speaker. Sure. Uh, Tony already created the wow moment uh, for us with that live demo which he gave. Uh, thank you, Tony, for that. And before I introduce Matt, I want to share with the audience a very quick story. Uh, just a few months back, my mom called me from India and said, uh, Sharad, what is this uh, generative AI concept? So the way I explained it to her was very simple. I said, mom, open the fridge, take a photograph of everything that you've got stocked in there, and AI will tell you all the things that you can cook with the recipes. She wasn't convinced. She thought for a while and said, but who's going to cook all that? I guess robots will do that as we go along. So anyway, <laughs> early days for technology. Sounds uh, good. Why don't you introduce our next speaker? Yes. So Matt, uh, Matt Craze is in the house and uh, he's going to be talking about data and sustainable aquaculture. Before I hand it over to Matt, quick introduction. He's a global food industry expert and a partner at uh, Spheric uh, Research, a company that has published several key studies on alternative proteins and seafood. His company is truly global with more than 400 clients all over Asia, Europe, and Latin America. So Matt, uh, take it away. Um, I guess uh, you'll be having a conversation with Lourdes and we are all ears. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Welcome, welcome, Matt. And I'm so delighted that you're here. And yeah, so no, that, thanks, thanks again for the invite. I'm so pleased to see the conference come together. And yeah, just, just uh, Tony's great as well. Part, yeah, part support, right. <laughs> sounds great. You're in Spain, right? Am I correct? Which part? I'm of... actually in Chile. So I'm in Puerto Valles. It's where uh, it's actually the um, uh, I would say where a lot of the salmon industry happens. Uh, in in Chile. It's kind of a yeah. hub of the industry. And for those of you who don't know, actually, Matt used to be a Bloomberg guy. So <laughs> we'll, we'll ask more about that question. But let me get started because I know you're pressed a little bit with time. So how can... Data... Oh, no, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good. You're good now? <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. Yes. So yeah. maybe you can share with our audience after our AI lecture, more on data mm -hmm. this time. <laughs> well, how can data analytics contribute to sustainable aquaculture practices? Yeah, I, I think that it can it can really uh, contribute in in so many different ways, right? I, we're really seeing uh, some of the first generations of uh, pe people like Tony entering the salmon industry. Um, 
and taking on some of the biggest challenges in that industry. I, I think this is the first generation of, of um, you know, the, the, as he as he put it, there's a decade of advances, which we're seeing deployed across industries. But I think that it can be especially relevant to to aquaculture. I mean, if you just consider the operating environment, I have a a, a nice. Oh, this is not going to work. But um, a magazine of a um, I, I, well, you can see some shrimp farms. But basically, what it shows is wide expanses of, of shrimp farms in Ecuador. Uh, murky waters, uh, very very difficult to. Um, you know, it's it's not like the cattle industry in North America where you're actually visibly inspecting animals. It, you can, but it's it's harder. So um, I think that, you know, the, the next wave of um, uh, AI and data and especially predictive analytics will really go a long way to solving some of the huge issues in aquaculture. And when you consider that uh, mortality rates in, uh, you know, let's say even salmon, take the Norwegian salmon farming industry, uh, mortality is about 16% last year it was it was fractionally up on the year before obviously that that country's dealing with uh added sea lice um problems uh from arguably from global warming warmer ocean temperatures and then the 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 shrimp industry you know range of diseases and dealing with mortality that's anywhere from low to up to 50% which is which is really a huge problem to solve so um I, I think that this, you know, we're we're at the the very beginning of that journey in seeing um, AI capabilities in in solving some of the big the big challenges and making it sustainable. Yeah, I think there's this is a very good conversation to start with because sometimes I think maybe just logically we don't know how like when we're talking about data obviously there's like a collection of figures in my head that's come into place. And then how does that relate to actually what we're doing with the animal, for example? I think that's mm -hmm. where my head went right away when I was talking about this. So maybe you can expand more in terms of what data-driven strategies can enhance disease prevention and management in aquaculture. Yeah, for sure. So I think right now, if you, if you look at the salmon, I'll, I'll pick, I'll, stay on the salmon industry because I've just come back from the Aquanor conference in Norway. I've, I've spoken to a lot of the industry leaders and I'll sort of relate a little bit of what I'm seeing in that space. Uh, back in 2018, uh, one of the researchers at Sintef, which is one of the major Norwegian science um, institutes, said that you will not recognize traditional net pen salmon farming in 10 years time. Now, that was said five years ago. If you fast forward to now, we're at a transition period where we see um, salmon farming to deal with some of its challenges and make the big sea lice challenge. Uh, we're moving to semi-closed containment um, net pens, which have a sort of a, a barrier around the, the, the net pen and, and water intake from deeper in the, the water column. Um, where where they they can avoid sea lice and cl fully closed containment, land-based systems, the, the RAS systems, and then sunken cage technology. And all of these technologies um, basically make it harder for to, to stick with the traditional model of humans inspecting the fish. You need more of the remote 
you know, the, 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 the uh, remote capabilities and a lot of robotics. If, if you look at salmon farming in 2023 versus five years ago, there is an amazing amount of robotics used right now. Robotics to clean the nets, uh, the biofouling, uh, bio which accumulates every single day, and even robotics to dig these, um, the, the, the boreholes for the mooring systems. And these robots are able to work much faster than divers have done in the past. And so this industry is really, really taking off. And, and the, the, the digital and AI and robotic piece is really central to allowing the, the industry to move towards semi-closed containment, sunken cage technology. Um, and without it, it doesn't work. You know, it, the, these farms need to be um, operated remotely and, and with robots. Good. Wow. It's good to know. What is the name of the technology again that does the robots underwater? Yeah. I mean, if you look at a company like Akvar Group, they're already working extensively with um, uh, robotic cleaners that really just they look like um, they look like men's electric shavers, <laughs> except they don't have the handle, and they just they just kind of go in and, and they have they they have rotating um, brushes in a sense, and or it's not brushes, but they 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 basically just take the biofouling off the nets, and now you know it, within literally within one or two years of seeing this technology in Norway, there were half a dozen companies here in Chile that were um, offering this as a service, you know, so um, aquaculture service companies basically leasing out the machinery and operating the machinery on behalf of, of um, different producers. So this, this technology leap happened very, very quickly. Um, but it's really, uh, for me, it's only a, a transition towards using now a new generation of cages, which I think is the next step with, at least with salmon. Sounds good. And talking about Salmon, maybe you can expand more in terms of um, what are you seeing as the future trend there for finfish? Well, with, salmon's unique in, in aquaculture because it's, it's this, you know, as, as you know, um, the average farm is, a, you know, is a huge, you know, even getting a, a salmon farming license in Norway costs 20 million euros. At least it did do before the, the tax came in but um it's it's big business um and actually that's where the bottleneck is it's one of the very few areas of aquaculture where the farming part of aquaculture is the most profitable part aspect of the business if you look at shrimp and tilapia it's uh, the, the the most profitable areas of you know feed and distribution arguably genetics uh, but so, so you're seeing, and because of the the difficulty of raising salmon and the farming of salmon, um, you're seeing an incredible. We've seen an incredible amount of R and D um, dollars, or I should say, Norwegian krona, uh, spent in trying to unlock um, uh, further growth. The, the, right now, the growth of the industry is is very very small. Um, it's it's obviously it's very difficult to increase salmon supply based on traditional, um, you know, fjords and, and fjord systems. And so uh, looking at the digital part of this is key to understanding how you're going to unlock more growth. 
And it's fascinating because um, it's very different because like the species that we cultivate is um, shellfish and we don't even have feed conversion ratio because the animal feeds itself. So it's just right. like when Claire was talking a while ago about how, you know, the complexity in our industries, because it's a different species, different different ways of um, cultivating or producing the species. And then now we're talking about robotics, which is a whole new different ballgame in the industry because um, right. the, biggest, the biggest cost we have in our business is actually divers because it's yeah. all in, in it's all subtitle, uh, 30, 60 feet under, nobody can see it. And it's $2,000 a day just for the, the divers itself. And so do you think that in the future, we will have robot divers? This is one of my um, projects that I wanted to, to do actually, <laughs> exactly have robot divers and not to replace yeah. the divers. It's safer too. I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, if I if I could come in and talk about oysters, I, I it's probably not like in my area of expertise. What I would say is, if you stick within aquaculture, what what I tend what what I see is that there's um, an incredible amount of in, innovation that's generated in Norway, um, a little bit here in Chile too, um, and then you see a lot of copy and paste of that technology from Norway to. Uh, to the Chilean salmon industry, to, to Canada in, in some part, and then other reasonably high value finfish industries. And you look at uh, sea bass and sea bream in, in the Mediterranean, that, that industry really um, borrows a lot from salmon and, and, and speeds up its learnings. I, I guess that shrimp farming is a little bit different, that, that's going on its own path of development, but there are Definitely some learnings as well that, that, that are, you know, you, you could say crossover. Uh, if you yeah, solving your diving problem, I don't know if some of the, the Norwegian um, advances in robotics would, um, would um, generate some sort of innovation there, but, but I, I, I definitely study it. <laughs> Yes, I'm. I have a strategy to get there. I'll let you know, but you'll be part of it <laughs> because <of data> production. <laughs> which leads me to my next question: How can data-driven decision making improve efficiency and productivity in aquaculture? Yeah, I, I think as 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 Tony may have said um, as well that, that there is. I think farms generally are generating a lot of data. I uh, there are you, you see with advances in computing. Um, uh, you know, a very rapid deployment of IoT solutions to a lot of these problems. But at the same time, and you see this across multiple industries, you know, I, I've been looking at cold storage recently, and it's, it's, it's a kind of similar problem. You have within a very short space of time, you'll see dozens of telematics companies that each come with their um, own interface. But it's really the companies that are able to you know, provide a, a, a one-stop solution and, and having these technologies interface with one another and, and working towards predictive analytics, which is that, you know, that, that you don't need to spend a lot of time and have, um, you know, basically PhDs um, manning the fort day and night trying to interpret data, but having the predictive analytics. So I'd look at a company, I mean, for example, you may have heard of a company called Real Data uh, that's in the RAS space. And those guys, yeah, they, they do quite a nice job of looking at the, uh, the feed that's, that's coming um, through a biofilter. And, and in a RAS system, what you have is you have a, 
it's it's an ecosystem where if there's too many nutrients in the water, the fish can get sick. So the, the flow of, of feed is critical, understanding what's happening around your biofilter. But those guys are actually able to come up with a, a sort of predictive model, which is, you know, lower the feed, you know, increase the feed and um, that, that type of thing. I think the, the key, to, key to a lot of this is predictive analytics. That's really good because that's technically what AI is doing is predictive analysis of what's going to happen next, which is modern day Nostradamus, I call it, right? Because it can typically really think what's going to happen next. So just on the maybe basic stuff, because we've kind of dived deep in AI and data, but maybe just basic stuff. If you have somebody who's just starting in the industry, what are the typical data that you think that they can make a checklist on and then see that these are the things that they should monitor all the time. Mm, yeah. I mean, it really depends on which industry doesn't, uh, you know, if you're talking about, you know, aquaculture. Um, I mean, if you look at things like shrimp now, there's, it's certainly getting a lot easier for some of these smaller operators to just um, uh, plug into a system. Uh, now, some, some of these companies that have emerged in, uh, for example, uh, e-fishery in Indonesia, if you if you look at the portfolio of of companies uh, of Aquaspark, you know a private equity um, group that invests across aquaculture, um, you, you might not have predicted that it was e-fishery that would become uh, a company with almost one billion dollars in sales, but that was actually the one that that's reached that quickly, and it was just the tremendous adoption of these technologies by smaller farmers. And, 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 and it really wasn't, you know, the, the, the original business model was to sell the hardware, which does the basics, you know, as, as you said, people, smaller farmers or people getting into the business where there's a basic sensor that measures your water quality, um, pH levels, what's happening with the, the nutrient load of water. Um, and, and, and then, the, you know, some of these automated feeding uh, systems. And then, you know, really these, these technologies took off because what they did was they created a, a digital platform um, for uh, these companies to plug into um, e-marketplaces and, and uh, just a whole range of um, kind of, you know, th things that, that really just emanated from that one starting business model. But it was just connecting these, these, these farmers to... Uh, the marketplace as well, which was such a huge part of the success. I think that's enabling, um, you know, people or, or operators that perhaps are less skilled, you know, in allowing automation uh, definitely is, is um, you know, it's, it, it's not so much, it doesn't require or doesn't depend so heavily on, you know, having a PhD in, in, biology and you know th th there are more there is more automation now um i visited one salmon uh, a new facility uh aquagen which which is going to sell salmon eggs uh, a couple of weeks ago and it's a, a very modern facility full uh, flow through ras and it and it will be manned by half a dozen people that's that's the that will be the working amount of people on on the site at any given in any given shift it's 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 mostly automated very good and so um this question is from bennett 
and it may be a little bit political. What do you think is the British Columbia government in Canada banning salmon net pen farming, given all the innovation within the space, making it more sustainable? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, no, it's a good question. It's really interesting. I'll, I'll give my take on it and I, I won't get into the politics uh, because I know there's a whole political um, layer. <laughs> Somebody said their answer. I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, there's, I've heard that there's potential if, 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 you know, British Columbia is one of those areas that could produce a lot more salmon than it does today. Um, that, that's one thing. Um, secondly, there are now new technologies that, that are emerging. Um, so I think Canada commissioned the Cohen report a few years ago. It, 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 there was a, a recommendation that, that land-based aquaculture should, uh, replace, um, um, net pens. What, what I would say, having just um, come back from Aquanor, that the Norwegian industry, and, and let's not forget that this, the Norwegians that pretty much operate Canadian farms, um, are not moving in the land-based direction. They're moving in the direction of semi-closed containment, closed containment, and sunken cages. Nor Norway's really converging around those new technologies. I would imagine that the... Um, the, the Norwegians are going to be um, advocating for these new technologies that are, are cleaner, um, they're, they're more sustainable. In some cases, they can collect um, the, the, fe the feces from fish. Um, and I suspect that that is going to, the, the, the rapid transition of technology that you're going to see in Norway is going to shape the debate in Canada. Because there is a there is a quite a lot of scientific work done by the DFO um, in terms of understanding the technology and the science. Um, th this is Canada, right? It's not a country maybe in that has less um, technical capability in in actually researching these things. And I, I think that the technological advances in CPEN are going to reframe the debate. Uh, now, if you win that debate with people in Vancouver who don't like salmon farming, I'm not sure about that part. And I, I won't go there and First Nations and uh, that's, yeah, <laughs> I'm not I'm not close enough to that to give a, a, a learned opinion. And then I probably wouldn't anyway. <laughs> It's interesting you said that because I had a professor in university before who told me there are two topics that you really shouldn't touch on when you're talking with somebody to avoid arguments. That's politics or religion. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But thank you for um, giving us your thoughts on this. Um, so yeah. my last question to you is what's next for spheric research? And maybe you can talk to them. What exactly does a spheric research do? Oh, gosh. Yes. I mean, we, we, we've had a rather confusing uh uh, strategy in the past where we've done different things. Uh, we started to collect data on land-based aquaculture a few years ago. Um, and we've also done work as well with alternative proteins. And, and my background um, is in agricultural commodities. I, I began to, I began the um, Bloomberg's agriculture data and news service in South America in 2006, in the middle of the um, what they called the commodity super cycle, when, when people realized that China was demanding much more commodities than before and, and, um, and uh, the prices remain high for a decade. So I was, I was part of that. Um, we're working a little bit on things in alternative proteins. 
And um, I would say that's a super interesting debate because right now uh, the, 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 the aquaculture is, is really constrained by its ability to move beyond fish meal and fish oil to highly, highly, you know, constrained commodities. And there's, there was no Peruvian fishing season. Uh, it, this is a topic that interests me a lot. And I think that the industry is going to be looking for ways to uh, really um, evolve in, in, in feed and ingredients. So I would say that look, definitely look at that space and uh, just, just looking at how aquaculture moves beyond uh, what it is today, which, which is uh, this incredible salmon industry with high technology and, and super profitable. And then the, the, other, the other species lagging behind, I think that it, it, it will evolve. And um, yeah, we, we, we'll, be, we'll, be a co- we'll be part of that journey. I hope. <laughs> it's so good to hear that that's where you're going next. And then um, maybe on a just personal basis, what's next for you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yes. Oh, personally. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I spend so much of my time working. I probably I don't know if the, the answer is any different. <laughs> just uh, just uh you know uh, looking after my kids and and uh and and doing all this uh doing what i do <laughs> it's great and i think that's one thing that sometimes people in the industry um forget right a lot of the people who work in our space are really passionate farmers and like you were supporters and i am a supporter of the industry but at the end of it all it's about community and people and i mentioned i haven't mentioned how we met actually <laughs> i had you on the podcast um twice now and it's been a really interesting conversation so we had on your first one and then the second one with the panel but just on the way that remember how we met actually I think I did see you in one of the conversations from the Global Seafood Alliance and I've been seeing all these reports about from spheric research and it's all about that when you see something there's actually a person behind that and I'm interested oh who was the brain behind the report who's the brain behind the farm who's the brain behind the technology and so it's so good that I'm connected with you Matt um, let me see if no, there's no, just thanks, more questions. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. And uh, yeah, I, I would say in the things that, that, that interest me as well, I, I would definitely, one thing I didn't mention is just the, the, the ability of, aqua, of aquaculture to solve um, food insecurity in lower income countries. I think it's such a big deal, you know, and if, if you look at the, there are there are examples of countries that were flagged as having really, really big food insecurity problems. If you look at Egypt at the beginning of the Arab Spring, uh, you know, earmarked as this could be really bad and Bangladesh as well. And both of those uh, countries really uh, partly solved that with um, with aquaculture. And it's not a story that's that well known. You know, it's it's interesting. Egypt built a huge tilapia industry. Bangladesh as well has huge aqua capabilities, produces a lot of fish. and I think that that that's just the beginning of it. You know, you, you see so many difficulties now with some of the Sahel countries, especially they import pelagic fish, you know, huge currency devaluations. Uh, a lot of the West African fisheries have collapsed. They they compete for cheap fish with a whole bunch of other stuff now. 
you know, so solving those things is, is such a big deal. I think if you if you look at it, you know, things like tilapia and catfish and all these types of industries that could solve those problems. It's like I, I wouldn't want to work in any other space. I just find it so interesting. I think we're both both lucky and blessed to have the opportunity to be actually in this space because there's a lot of really good people in this industry. So with that, thank you very much, Matt, for your time. No and obviously, you're always available every time I reach out to you. So I'm really happy that you're my connection. So how can they get in touch with you? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, we have a website, sphericresearch.com. Um, I have, uh, you can contact me at mcraze at sphericresearch.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active. So um, yeah, that, those, those would be good ways. Thank you again. And for those of you who wanted to um, have a little bit more of Matt, he actually, one of my favorite speech that you did was from one of the events um, that you did where it talks about the money in aquaculture. Obviously, my podcast is about the business of aquaculture. And so I was really fascinated with the data that you shared in that conference. So thank you very much again, Matt. And I look forward to our next conversation to our audience. I'd like to encourage you to put down on the chat, what is your biggest takeaway from Matt's? But for now, thanks, Matt. And enjoy the oh, thank you. Yeah, it was a first communion of your, of your child. I know you're going. That's to right. Have... It's just coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Enjoy. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. And I wanted to bring over Sharad. What have you been your biggest takeaway from that conversation? For me, it was along the lines of robotics. I'm really interested in that. In fact, I wanted to go to Japan to have see if I can create a robot diver. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, the bigger picture is uh, regardless of industry, everything is going to be driven by technology. And um, I'm sure you must have heard this uh, Quite recently, I think a Nike CEO made the statement that uh, they are no more going to be an athletic wear company. They are going to be a technology company. So I think that means a lot. Think about it. I mean, Nike and technology, uh, clearly they have defined that uh, as, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the thing that's going to drive growth and future. And they are, believe it or not, using AI to create smart shoes. And uh, I was in South Africa quite recently, and uh, the golf shoe had a particular chip in it, which would tell me how far I hit the ball. I mean, it's unbelievable how AI is uh, seamlessly seeping into everything that we do. And uh, it's a bit eerie, but then we have to start getting used to it. And I think technology clearly is going to be the driving factor. It's going to differentiate companies from being successful to being not so successful. So I think uh, every company has to embrace technology and become a software company of sorts. So that was the biggest takeaway for me. And I have actually one audience poll ready with me. If you allow me, Lourdes, let's ask our audience on uh, when we should be hosting our next Aqua Connect conference. That so, sounds good. You can yeah, launch the just, poll uh, and put, for the, the yeah. Phone, yeah. Oh, very fancy. I like this. But for those of you, you should you should also um, put down on the chat. What's your biggest takeaway from Matt's conversation? OK, so we wanted to launch this poll because we had some feedback, obviously, about time zone and um, the day. So this would be a good chance for you to voice out. When do you think our next conference would be? Um, because this will you will be part of 
the vote of when we're going to do our next one. <laughs> yes, we'll keep this open for a little while more because I can see that 33% of our audience have already participated. Now it's 39. Oh, I do yeah. encourage all of you to please participate because it will give us uh, good feedback on when we should be hosting our next conference in terms of days of the week. Sounds good. And again, for those of you who just listened to Matt, what's your biggest takeaway from that conversation? Because it's a little bit left brain. So we're now on a third hour of the conference. And so if you are getting a little bit overwhelmed, know that we have a lot more time and but for now, maybe even just one word, drop on the chat what's what resonated with you from that last conversation. And then um, we're, while we're doing the poll, and then we'll have a little break after that. Indeed. What about you? Um, what do you prefer, um, Sharad? Um, I'm good for uh, the combo that we have this time. Friday, Saturday works for me. Uh, so um, a lot of people are working from home. So it really depends, you know, um, on people's preferences, but we'll definitely be going by what we hear today for uh, planning our next one. So this is very valuable input for us. We've got more than 50% now who've participated. Um, we'll just keep it going for a few more seconds and then I will end this poll. And uh, Lourdes, I believe now you'll be doing your presentation after this. Are you all set? After the break, yeah, we're going to do a 15-minute break, and then uh, we're going to do the future trends. And so I look forward that, um, for the next session. And for now, um, share your takeaways from today so far. And we had four speakers, so that's quite a lot in the three hours that we've been together. So um, yes. for me, again, from Oren's um, presentation is always never be needy because that is one thing that I always love hearing him say that while the investors are doing a due diligence on you, you also do a due diligence on them. And with Claire's conversation, obviously you've seen how small is the investment that's going into the aquaculture space. So we're going to change that because a lot of people are now being very interested in our industry. So go take out your thinking cap and join the community so that we can have more people having one voice in our industry um, to invest in our space. And obviously, Tony's presentation on AI was mind-boggling seeing that picture as everybody enjoy that. And then obviously with Matt, I love the way that he just weave in how to practically use data in doing, which a lot of you already know, but it just keeps the importance of what further information we need to focus on so that we can be effective in our business and in our industry. So again, Put your chat, your um, biggest takeaway from this morning's session. We're going to have a 15-minute break, and then we're going to go to the future trends. Welcome, welcome back. Welcome. All right. So before we went into the break, uh, we asked our audience uh, your stated preferences for the days of the week. And 44% of you voted for Thursday and Friday. And so uh, I guess we hear you. And our next... Uh, conference is going to be December 7 and 8. So please save the date in your calendars. Formal invites will follow in due course. Um, now it's time to go back to the producer of the show, Lourdes. 
Uh, you're going to be talking to us uh, about the trends in the industry. Uh, I don't think I need to introduce you again. So just take it away and share with us your insights on where this industry is going. What are the things people need to watch out for? And at the back of it, I'll come back and ask you a few questions. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much, Sharad. And let me see. I hope technology works in terms of sharing my screen. And here we are. Can you guys see my screen? Yes, you just need to go full screen. Right. Okay, here we go. So again, thank you very much, everybody, for showing up today and being a part of our premier launch of AquaConnect Conference, which is how we can collaborate in the global aquaculture community. But let me tell you a story on how this came about. It was May 2021, and that's a month, a year and two months after the pandemic. I attended a five-day full-time marketing micro school from one of my partners, who's also one of the partners of this conference, Genius U. It's an edtech platform that's listed in the New York Stock Exchange. It talked a lot about of information, just like what we had today. And but what struck me the most was one thing. In that marketing micro school, it was talking about podcasting, and so I thought I was not confident enough to actually produce a show because. Obviously, our industry is very technical. I didn't have the technical background or experience as I was very new in the industry, but I knew that Maximizer is one of my strengths. And so I'm always on Zoom anyway. Who wasn't when COVID hit? So I thought I just hit the record button and I'll be capturing information. So the mentor said, you can just start with 15 episodes and then see if you like it. So I put on a date on my calendar, just like we told you to put the date of when the next conference is. So that start date was May 7, 2021. And here we are, two years later, 100 plus episodes, completing season seven this month, and we're launching season eight in November, and a floodgate of really meaningful conversations, just like what you've seen today, and almost 17,000 plus downloads. So there's a lot of things that happened after the podcast launch, but one of the most heartwarming feedback that we got was, I would not have finished my thesis if I didn't find out about your podcast by accident. This was from a university student. She said that the experts who, interviewed, who you interviewed gave me hope that there's future in aquaculture. So I'd like to share that with you because that's just one of the demographics of the listeners of the show. Um, there, we have investors. We have obviously small to medium businesses. And part of the education program that we're launching is because there, was not, there, were, not, there were not enough information out there when I started in the industry 15 years ago. So this will also not be possible without our sponsors. So I mentioned a while ago about people. I love people coming from the Philippines. It's just normal for us to always connect with people. So I'd like to thank our sponsors and you'll be seeing more of them in our next conferences, but there are people behind these company names. So I would like to personally thank Olivia and Israel Pons who connected me with Pitch in the Sky, Mexico and Angel's Nest in Latin America. 
and I have Gwyn Jones and my Association of Sustainability Practitioners Community in Europe, who I actually met via Zoom as well. I haven't met them in person, but they have been my family, ASP. And then obviously our Tim Kennedy and Sherry Bolio and, and their team, the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance. Deb Hellback and her team at the Vancouver Island University and Center for Seafood Innovation. Amy Novogratz, Una Eager from Netherlands, who are so gracious with their time. And obviously, they are supporting us with what we're doing in the education in the sustainable aquaculture sphere from Aquaspark. Binnacle, you will hear from him tomorrow, who I met in Spain when I was in Barcelona attending the Stevie Awards event in 2017. And he'll be talking later about innovation. Binnacle is the name of the company. Robert Arthurs International. I think maybe you saw Robert um, join us in the conference today, and Victor Gordado from Baja, California. So obviously, this will also not be possible without my team on the background, Michelle, Marilise, Stacy, Ross, Sharad, obviously, and Mary, and Michelle Nolting and Anna Povarczyk from Genius U team. So I'd like to ask you this question. If we were having this discussion three years from today, and you're looking back over those three years. What has to happen in your life, both personally and professionally, for you to feel happy with your progress? This has been a question that I always ask myself quarterly, and it's an R-factor question devised by one of my coaches named Dan Sullivan, and R stands for relationship. So I'd like to think of that during the rest of my conversation with you today and in the next two days or if you already know you can jot that down maybe you wanted to put it on the chat so you can declare it with everybody who's here today so that we can support you how that's going to happen but for now here's a message from our founder Mr. Eric Gant. Wayne Gretzky was once asked what was the secret of his success and he said he never goes for what the puck is he always goes for where the puck is going to be. So that's merely the same question. Where is the puck going to be? And that's what I want you to think about. Where will you be three years from now? Maybe two years from now, a year from now. Hopefully I get to see you in the next Aqua Connect conference next year. You already have the dates. And so with that, I'd like to tell you the top 10 trends in sustainable aquaculture and more. The operative word here is more. So in 2021, I amalgamated all of the interviews that I did on the podcast. So I literally have one question to all of the guests on my show. And that was, what is the future trend that you're seeing in aquaculture? You can listen to it on episode one, season two. In 2022, I amalgamated all of the interviews I did on the podcast combining all of the experts' brains on what the top 10 future trends are in aquaculture. But I added two more questions. What's not changing and what are the challenges that they're seeing in aquaculture? You can listen to it on episodes two and three on season three. But on 2023, on the onset of ChatGPT being launched last November 2022, I presented the top trends in sustainable aquaculture using ChatGPT and with my AI presenter, Jackie. So here's a little bit of that, and we will drop on the link the whole presentation. I'm not going to bore you with Jackie, but I just wanted to show you a little bit of what they are. 
Good day, everyone. I'm Jackie, Lourdes Gantz AI presenter, and today we're going to share with you the top 10 trends in sustainable aquaculture. Trend number one, sustainable seafood selection, reeling in success with stylish and responsible choices. We have the power as individuals to make a difference in protecting our oceans and preserving marine life through conscious seafood selection. By choosing sustainable seafood options, we not only ensure the health of our oceans, but also enjoy stylish and delicious meals that align with our values. Let's seize the opportunity to make a positive impact and become champions of sustainable seafood selection. So these are top 10 trends for 2023, but it's not just Trend that. As you can see, there's a lot of information online. There's also the top 10 aquaculture trends in 2023, data provided by Start Us Insights. So we can get amalgamated with all of this information, but what does matter is that how we do with this information. I want you to take action on what you're going to do and actually really jot down what that is as a, spe a specific action item after our conference in the, in today and tomorrow. So... Oren talked a little bit about this because I saw this clip in one of his live events in October 2021 called Velocity, where there were CEOs and founders and investors in a group in Carlsbad, California, that he put together as a mastermind group, and he showed us this video. So if you're familiar with this show, it's the Game of Thrones wherein everybody is talking about winter is coming. What really is winter is coming? And Oren this morning talked a little bit about that. And so I present to you the first future trend, the age of distrust. Is winter actually coming? But I believe it's already here. Most of you are already feeling that with inflation, hyperinflation looming, the world is in chaos. Actually, in 2022, Sam Edelman produced a report called the Trust Barometer, that the world is facing a trust crisis. And what this does is it actually talks about what makes people trust each other and what are the important information that you need to know so that you can garner trust. So here are some of the reports that he did in the last 22 years of what it's like and the cycle of distrust was released last year. So you can see here in this slide, the societal fears on the rise. Percent of people who worry about job loss, climate change, hackers and cyber attacks, losing a freedom, your freedom as a citizen and experiencing prejudice of racism. What else? The government and media fuel a cycle of distrust. We talked a little bit about that today when Matt was presenting. We also seen some of the lies that are being given and so coming from journalists and reporters, 67%, 66% countries, government leaders, and 63% from business leaders are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. So there's a lot of information that are in your slides that you can find. 
But I wanted to just focus on when trust declines for government and media. Interestingly, in this report, business is still only the trusted institution. And on that, this is also a statistic of why societal leaders are not trusted and the percentage of why that is. Failure of, failure of leadership makes distrust the default. Distrust is the default, no basis for peaceful debate. So again, a lot of information, but what are we going to do with all this information? So I'm just going to go through these slides because you can find it on your reference. But I wanted to highlight this particular slide. Prior to COVID, there are boom sectors and bus sectors. Exotechnology, travel and tourism and entertainment are the boom sectors. Retail and trade, construction and government are bus sectors. Post-pandemic, what brings trust are boom models, such as cash-positive organizations, decentralized and being global. While distrust are bus models if you have a lot of expenses, cash burn, centralized, and it's local. So just remember this slide for now, and I'm going to delve with it again later. So all stakeholders hold business accountable, and these are the percentage of the statistics based on that Edelman report. So again, you can take a look at this at your own pace. But what is now your next action step after hearing trend number one? Navigate distrust or mistrust, catch attention, earn time so that you can deserve trust. Trend number two, age of AI. How many of you have not heard the word AI, artificial intelligence in the last eight months, in the last three months? Well, we just heard it a lot this morning from Tony's presentation. So I wanted to show you a video next because this video slash movie was from 10 years ago. When's your birthday? I never had a birthday. His name is David. Felix, that's creepy. No, this is real. <laughs> In the distant future, in an age of intelligent machines, he is the first robotic child programmed to love and coexist as a member of a family. His is a tale of humanity and a journey to find his place among humans and machines. So that movie was actually from 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago now. So artificial intelligence is really not new. It's just being heightened right now. And a lot of people, when it's new, they're fearful. Artificial intelligence will human robots, humanoid robots replace us. Can you imagine if you're from the Stone Age and there's a lot of things that's happened that's making you afraid of the cell phone because the cell phones now are really way advanced. And what are the tech, st tech stocks that can predict earnings you can invest in? So we can take advantage of AI because the top 20 stocks in the S&P 500 already have artificial intelligence. We have Apple, Microsoft, Aramco, Alphabet, Amazon, 
Meta, Tesla, and NVIDIA. Is AI conscious? A Google engineer says that AI has become sentient. What does that actually mean? You've watched that movie from 10 years ago. Experts urge parent personhood rights for the conscious AIs of the future. So we were talking about taking action. I like to, again, really pat yourself on the back for being here today because you are part of the education revolution and you're training yourself on how to take advantage of the age of AI. But I also don't want you to get discouraged because there's a lot of technology happening. These are just some of the differences of what's going on in terms of education. As you know, it has been disrupted when Zoom was the main method of learning for schools. And then there's the five technology that you can list. Education technology, financial technology, green technology, medical technology, and space technology. So what are you doing right now to be able to take advantage of those? So I don't want you to get overwhelmed. So what is your lighthouse? What will be the vision so that you don't have the fear of missing out with all of this information is knowing your purpose. So if you scan this code and find out your purpose, you'd be able to know what your purpose is in connection with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And it's very important because all of this over information overload can get you distracted, can get you off course. For me, my purpose in connection with the UN SDG is no poverty. And education, UN SDG number four, was the tool that got me there. And so I'm sharing that now. Manatee Holdings, our company's UN SDG is in line with life below water and it's now evolving to number 17, which is partnership for the goals. So drop on the chat later, what's your purpose in connection with the UN SDG? Scan this code so that you can find what that is because we're excited to know what that is as well. Which leads me to trend number three, Society 5.0. So Japan actually launched Society 5.0 in 2019. So that's four years ago. But it's one, two, three, and four. So one is hunter-gatherer society. 2.0 is agrarian society. 3.0 is industrial society. 4.0 is information society. 5.0 now is about a combination of being high-tech and being high-touch. So it talks about Internet of Things, but what really is an Internet of Things? So it's a technology that allows us to add a device to an inert object that can measure environmental parameters, generate associated data, and transmit them through a communications of network. So these are just some of the stuff that are really happening in the education industry. This was from the weforum.org agenda, wherein modern society has reached its limits and Society 5.0 will liberate us. So what's the difference between 5.0 and the fifth revolution and 4.0? So in terms of economies of scale, Society 5.0 is about problem solving and value creation, a society where value is created compared to its liberation from focus on efficiency. And I heard one of my mentors from Genius U, Roger Hamilton, talk about Nowadays, with AI and with information on your fingertips, it's about economies of speed versus economies of scale. Society 5.0 is also about diversity, a society where anyone can exercise diverse abilities, compared to 4.0, which is about liberation from suppression of individuality. 
And then we talked about decentralization as a boom model compared to concentration. And then resilience and sustainability and environmental harmony is all part of 5.0. So what's the next action step? Let us help you create a comprehensive strategic roadmap with implementation timeline. So I highly encourage you to book a call with us. Michelle is going to support you here at Chief's Partnerships Officer because we want to be part of your community and part of what's next for you. What's that for you? Which leads me to trend number four, powered community. So our main survival is to form a community. What is a community? It's a group of people with a common set of values and beliefs. When this is created, something remarkable happens. Like today, I'm really grateful that you are here today because this would not have happened without you, without my team, without my sponsors and the people who are supporting us who can't even be here today. So I would like your action step to be joining our LinkedIn community if you haven't already, because we would like to see you there to support you on your ongoing journey after the conference. Which leads me to trend number five, the blue ocean revolution. I don't know if you know, but Crunchbase just published two days ago seafood startups that got funding in the last two years, and it was remarkable. You've probably seen this. This was one September one, seven days ago. Icelandic Salmon Inc.'s 100 million euro loan agreement pursuing dual listing. Three weeks ago, you probably heard CH4 Global completed a 29 million Series B funding. They're a company harnessing the power of Asparagopsis seaweed. Three weeks ago, also, well, this was from July 2023. E-Fishery secures 200 million funding. You heard Claire and Matt, I think, talking about this, becomes Indonesia's first aquaculture unicorn. Nobody has heard of this happen in the aquaculture industry. So you know that the blue ocean revolution is already here. This was two months ago. This is almost three years ago, November 2020, and it's a little bit outdated, but West Coast Aquaculture in Sydney became the first company who had an IPO in cryptocurrency. Granting, I think they got delisted. It's probably just the second mouse will get the cheese, followed by the 100 monkeys syndrome. So what's your action step? I'd like to be able to know, well, you already know this. It's a good time to have a list of what aquaculture or seafood companies are surfing the wave of green economy that you want to be involved in, to be involved with. And I'm really happy that you guys are taking action because this is the thing. The information is just knowledge but without implementation, it will be very hard to ride the wave of the change changes that are happening right now. So with that, I'd like to leave you to make a list of what are the companies that you want to be involved with. If you're an investor, what part of your portfolio is focused on aquaculture technology, food technology, and maybe even alternative protein seafood category. So thank you very much for your attention. I hope that you learned a thing or two from my presentation. And I look forward to know what your biggest takeaway from all these top five trends. We'll discuss six to 10 tomorrow. So Sharad, what was your biggest takeaway from that? Um, yeah, so before I answer your question, while you were speaking, I created a poll to ask the audience what resonates with them. Oh, I like that. Thank yeah. you for doing that. So, oh, I may yeah, pick one it, myself. 
<laughs> age of distrust very relevant we see it uh, you know in every country and every continent whether it is politics business sports what have you so i think that's uh, building trust is key ai everybody knows has taken over the airways it's taken over our lives and uh, i am right now in a, a detox mode so i don't want uh, it's tmi right too much information yes. so i think we need to all take a step back and uh, just take in the information that we really need because very tough to absorb everything that's going on with all the social media channels and all the web3 stuff that's coming at us it's uh, very important to keep our balance and our mental well-being and on a personal note um, i was just sharing with somebody on whatsapp uh, i was working almost 14 hours a day on back to back zoom meetings day in day out and had a complete burnout one fine day so we don't want that to happen so we need to pace ourselves with technology very very important and uh, of course i'm a big believer of the blue ocean philosophy and uh, i think um, all of us need to follow the trends and uh, the learnings that come with that and what i'm seeing right now is yeah blue ocean revolution seems to resonate at 38% with the audience and second is uh, artificial intelligence and followed by the others so um, clearly i think uh, uh, lordis you have uh, highlighted in your presentation all the key factors that we have to monitor and uh, there is enough uh, content already available for us to be reading on the internet so i don't think there's any dearth of that and what works uh, very well for me actually it's a secret uh, my mentor is a gen z a 22 year old so i am probably uh, yeah thrice uh, her age and whenever i am stuck with anything uh, i just go to her she is my chat gpt and gives me all the information in a jiffy so i'm so impressed by the gen zs and it also reinstills the fact that our future is in good hands so find a gen z mentor and uh, that's uh, my secret that i've shared with you today um all right so uh, the audience has clearly spoken blue ocean revolution followed by artificial intelligence and then powered community so that's the result of the poll i'm going to end it now since 56% have participated now 60% so thank you audience for uh, your feedback on this um so yeah so uh, lotus you tell me what next yeah so is there any question from the audience about the trends i would like to know what you guys are thinking i know there's a lot of information but maybe if there's only one word one thought one theme that's coming up for you just like what i shared in that 5 day micro school I the only thing that really resonated with me was podcasting. So I wonder what that is for you because that may be your next gateway to what your next level is. What would be something meaningful that you wanted to do? Obviously, I wanted for you to share what your purpose is in connection with the UN SDG because that is very pivotal when I do some mentoring is we need to have a lighthouse because as we mentioned there's a lot of information 
floating around. So we need to be focused on what we need to be building to help other people and give value. So drop on the chat later or tomorrow um, what would be what's the purpose based on the UN SDG that you have. Um, and I'd like to share with you, obviously, how you can continue with us with the education that we're providing for sustainable aquaculture. We'd like for you to be a part of the community, obviously. Book a call with Michelle on how we can support you. And um, we have information to share about the Sustainable Aquaculture Mastermind that we are going to launch because we're launching it on this program. Um, know that we have Claire Pirula already and some of the community members that you've seen today part of the group because we wanted to create this as one community where we can deliver value to most people. So I'll give you one minute to think what your question is. And if there's not any more question, I would like for you who are interested to know if you want to continue with the training. There was a question a while ago about training. So we're going to provide that for you if you become part of our, what we call SAM. SAM stands for Sustainable Aquaculture Mastermind. And I would like to share more with you about that. So let's see, is there any question from the audience from the top trends? Okay, let me see. I'm seeing. And thanks, Solomon. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks, Victor. I'm so happy that you guys are here. Thanks, Edna. Edna's interested to participate on the training. We'll give you some more information on that in 30 minutes, in 30 seconds. <laughs> and um, I'm really grateful that you guys are here today. So um, there's be a lot more of this that's going to happen. So we're going to do this quarterly. We're in um, our next event will be actually about pitching. So if you have actually a group that you wanted to support in terms of funding, the December event is how to fund projects in sustainable aquaculture. It will be a live pitch wherein real investors are going to come in and they're going to actually provide investment if they find that your project is um, very much in alignment with the blue ocean revolution. So with that, I don't see any questions on the chat. So if you allow me, I wanted to share more about the Sustainable Aquaculture Mastermind. Um, let me just see if I can put my screen on that page. But if something pops up that you have a question, continue to do so. And then um, we'll address that once I see it. But for now, I wanted to share my screen about the mastermind so you have a little bit of information on what that's about because I would love for you to join us uh, I think I can do share screen yeah okay here we go so this was the same page that you guys know from the start of our conference it's about shaping the future of aquaculture alongside like-minded visionaries Hopefully, you've already joined our community on LinkedIn and you book a call with Michelle. And obviously, if you haven't heard of the Business of Aquaculture podcast, I mentioned it's available on iTunes, on Spotify, on Buzzsprout or your favorite channel. And again, you can download your conference slides here and your conference booklet to see who are our sponsors. But if you scroll down uh, with this page, you'll see what this is about because we wanted to prepare you for these future trends. I have a mentor and he said that um, millionaires actually 
look for opportunities while billionaires look for future trends. So today you are all billionaires because you already know the future trends. But I want you to continue with your learning with us because like you, we know that the solitary path of an aquapreneur is a tough one. I started here 15 years ago by marriage because my husband and business partner, Eric, you heard a while ago, started as a commercial fisherman with 10,000 hours of diving experience, but it was a lonely, lonely industry because, as you know, most of the people in the industry is either wanting to do things on their own, it's a very competitive, small to medium farmers compared to bigger companies, and so I wanted to change that. Um, my experience is not much into aquaculture, but I like building community. As I mentioned, the podcast has been life-changing for me. So I hope that the SAM Sustainable Aquaculture Mastermind will be life-changing for you because it's going to be part of a bigger vision wherein we're thinking after we have the number of people who are interested in the, the mastermind that we're going to launch an aquapreneur academy that will lead us to the sustainability school. So this is the vision that we have for this um, group. So what exactly is it? It's about trailblazing mastermind. And what is really a mastermind? It's about a group of people, a community who shares the same values and beliefs to change something, do remarkable things, as I mentioned. So we're only capping this for 12 aquapreneurs. And if you're really interested in what we're going to do, you will become part of the conversation of what we wanted to change in the industry. Obviously, if you have an investment that you wanted to fund, we will talk about how can we actually get sooner there? Because as my experience, Oren mentioned, we were fundraising and we started 10 years ago and we didn't know what we were doing. I hope I met Oren 10 years earlier because I only found out about how his methods work two years ago, maybe three years ago now. But I didn't realize this until I actually joined the mastermind. And so I would like to bring the knowledge that and information that I learned in the last couple, maybe three years now, with Genius U, the, the company we partner with that make this event happen for us, and obviously the partners that you're seeing here. So book a call because um, it's going to be epic. I already know that the mastermind is only as good as the people, and knowing that you are all going to be part in it is getting more exciting because it's very niche. A lot of I haven't heard any group that has done a mastermind for aquaculture. And just to give you a little bit of context of, again, what mastermind is. So I used to have a coach that says that um, when A and B join together, there's this entity that actually exists. That's a combination of both. And just to give you an example near and dear to my heart, my husband's name, Eric, and my name, as you know, is Lourdes. So every time we work together in the business, so it can be become a little bit stressful if we don't agree on everything. And so I will have my own opinion. He will have his own opinion. But when we're fighting, it's like fighting tooth and nail because we have two different opinions. But when we come together, we have an emergence. We actually have a name for our emergence. And when I call emergent, it's a combination of both of our opinions. And we call our emergent actually Desiree. And so I would like to create an emergent with you on how we can move forward the sustainable aquaculture. So please do join us. You can take a look at all this. But the first step is actually book a call with Michelle. And you can find here what's included, what you will learn. 
And I would look forward to seeing you on the mastermind because together is better. So I hope that you learned a lot today. We're almost out of time, but um, if there's any questions, tomorrow we're going to be holding a session before the event. So if you wanted to come earlier, I think um, my team, correct me if this is wrong, I think we're going to start at 8.30 tomorrow instead of 9. So we have a lot more to cover in case that you wanted to join the group. But for now, is there any questions? Again, book that call, join the community, listen to the podcast. I would love for you to be part of the group. And if there's anything else that my team can remind me if I'm missing anything. So if book a call with Michelle tomorrow or today. And if you're not yet in the community, please do so. Oh, we're actually going to start 8.15 tomorrow, Pacific time. If you guys have some questions about the sustain about Sam, we'll just call it Sam. Maybe that's already uh, an emerging name about the group. The group that we created today is called Sam. So thank you for being part of Sam. <laughs> Shazam. Thanks, Bennett. Thanks, Mike. And thank you, everybody, for being here. Time to network. There will obviously be a time to network. So we'll give you more information on that tomorrow and how we can do that. Join the community because we'll be posting a lot of the information that we shared today. Pragati, thank you for being here. Rob Arthurs, connect with him. He's really good. Book a call with Michelle. We'd love for you to be on the mastermind, Rob. Um, Edna, we'll see you tomorrow. Elizabeth, thank you. I know for some of you, it may be late. Maybe part of our poll tomorrow is the, the timing. So we're going to see you on tomorrow. For now, maybe we'll end together because you are now Sam. You're now the emergent Sam. And with that, I will see you tomorrow at 8.15. Oh, and Edna says it's 9.06 p.m. in Nigeria. <laughs> Thank you so much for staying. First round on Mike, he says, and we're going to have, what do you say in, in English? There's always uh, wine at five o'clock somewhere. It's five o'clock. And Michelle, I know it's from the, you're from the UK. It's also late there. Anna, thank you very much for being here. And with that, Let's have a toast. Here's my Society 5.0 imaginary champagne. Michelle is a favorite of champagne. It's always five o'clock somewhere in the world, Mary says. So thank you very much. I'll see you tomorrow at 8.15 if you have any questions about Sam. And hopefully you book a call, you join the community, listen to the podcast. But most of all, I would love to see you all in a sustainable aquaculture mastermind. I see you tomorrow for future trends. Six to ten. Sharad, any last words? Uh, last words. A big thank you to you and to the entire team for putting up this great conference. Loved every moment of it. And on a housekeeping note, I want our audience to know that tomorrow they will receive from us a recording of this entire uh, conference. Do share it with uh, you know your friends, your community members. We want to reach as many people as we can. And uh, yeah, so we look forward to seeing you tomorrow, 8.15, as Lourdes said. And uh, we have many more interesting speakers and more knowledge to be shared. So stay safe, be good, and see you tomorrow. Thank you, Lourdes. 
Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Thank Sharad. You. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Marilise. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Yes.